Jessica Jones. Welcome to School of Everything Else. This episode was recorded Black Friday, the 27th of November 2015. In this episode, we're discussing the second of the Netflix TV series tying in exceptionally passingly loosely with the Marvel Cinematic Universe leading up to The Defenders, wherein the central protagonist will possibly, maybe fleetingly, meet another Marvel character not directly associated with the source publication, thus achieving what has been known since 2012's Avengers as a crossover. Jessica Jones. Scathing introduction aside, it's actually ace. Challenging, smart, diverse, and highly recommended TV viewing, or we wouldn't even be here. Hello to my co-host, Sharon Shaw. Hello. Hello to Laura Kate Dale of Destructoid and the Jimquisition podcast. Hello. Hello to Alistair Stewart of Pseudopod and owner of The Escape Artists. Hi there. Hello to Marguerite Kenner of Cast of Wonders. Hi, everybody. And hello to Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince. Hello. So this is quite a popular TV show that quite a lot of people were talking about on the Twitters. So uh, I think I just, I kind of noted that all of you guys were talking about it. I was like, I'd really like to hear what they have to say on the show. So, and thank you all for coming on because it's, it's awesome to have uh, such a strong ensemble cast. Welcome. Okay, so we're going to go full spoiler on this. Somebody, um, I think Jesse asked me um, on Twitter, are you going to spoil this? And I thought, when do we ever not spoil it? There's I think one we have thing. a real hard time talking about it without spoiling it. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing we, we actually never spoiled. That was the Green Lantern animated series. And I really regret not spoiling that because we missed out talking about one of the best narratives in an animated show ever. Mm. Uh, so but that specifically, we were trying to gear more people up to go and see it. Yeah. Yeah, but basically we should have done a spoiler section at the end where we really talked about it. But you remember on that one, we were also talking about the Green Lantern movie and the Green Lantern comics and the Green Lantern <laughs> everything. We should have made that a two-parter. But yeah, so um, as with everything, this is full spoilers, folks. So uh, we recommend that you see the entirety of season one first. Uh, but just for those people who are curious and who want to hear what we think first or don't want to see it at all, but just want to hear a great podcast about great TV, the basic plot goes thus. This is adapted from a little-known Marvel comic written by superstar wordsmith Brian Michael Bendis of uh, Powers and New Avengers. Uh, pretty much, like, uh, name a Marvel book, uh, like a major Marvel book in the past few, like, decades, and he's written it at some point, Right. Uh, the comic was called Alias, but clearly Netflix didn't want this confused with the Jennifer Garner espionage show Alias, so they dallied with AKA Jessica Jones for a while before just going for the lead character's main name, which is in itself a statement on superheroes that's worth discussing. Jessica is a private eye who operates in the same New York City that we saw attacked by aliens in The Avengers. She is super strong and neither advertises this fact nor hides it. Mostly, she's just employed by people wanting their cheating spouses spied on. But she has serious trauma in her past and throughout season one, it comes back to haunt her. It's an action thriller neo-noir sci-fi that deals in super-powered metahumans rather than superheroes but focuses far more frequently on human relationships, living with trauma and abuse, and the struggle for control. 
Now, the series creator was Melissa Rosenberg, who adapted the Twilight books into five wildly successful movies. She also wrote Step Up, worked on Party of Five, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, Ali McBeal, Birds of Prey. Anyone remember Birds of Prey? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyone want to briefly describe Birds of Prey in, in half a minute? Birds of Prey was the early 1990s discoized version of a really very, very good DC comic, mm. which essentially took all the really interesting, um, predominantly female character dynamics in that book and jammed it into a blender made of early 90s techno. Mm. See, I was going to say 90s Sex in the City superheroes. That works. Yeah, I like yeah. that. That why? Why? Going why have I? Why have I never seen this? This sounds amazing. Because it's cheesy. <laughs> it's been buried. Uh, it's very cheesy. It's like um, if you imagine. Um, I t- uh, do you remember Mutant X? Yeah. Not dissimilar to that, is it? Oh, I, 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 I think I've that's not a fair comparison. Okay, so yeah, it's it's all, yeah, it's but it's it's Barbara Gordon and it's um, Huntress who was like an alternate. It's the other version of Huntress, the earlier version, who's an alternate yeah. Batman's daughter and mm. like Catwoman's and daughter. Dina Meyer is, and Dina Meyer. Um, yeah. uh, did she actually have powers in that as uh, um, uh, Black Canary? No, I, th- I think I she, think she was tech based. Yeah, she, Black she, Canary she, ever going to have powers? <laughs> No, anyway. probably not. Uh, so yeah, it's it's kind of like a cheesy version of uh, uh, Arrow. Although I think they actually implied that was the Joker in there played by Mark Hamill. See, yeah. Neil's the expert on this sort of stuff. He excels at this. Yeah. A- I, anyway, I, yeah. I distinctly remember the opening scene was the end of the worst day in Batman's life, where he's apparently killed, and the Got Joker on. rides off on a powerboat, injuring Babs as he goes. Got and on. and they did get Hamill in to laugh. That was basically the only thing he he does is the maniacal Arkham City laugh. <laughs> That one. That's really good, Alex. Not bad, yeah. I, I, I might should maybe play the Joker at some point. And yeah, okay. So but most notably for our purposes, uh, Melissa Rosenberg worked on Dexter. Yes, up, exactly. Up until it got less good, I think. Yeah, was, seasons one through leave? four, I think. One through four, right? Right. To, without spoiling Dexter, because we thoroughly recommend you guys check that out. Although it is very dark and very uh, grim at times. Um, was season four the one with? that bit at the end yes it is okay most traumatic television i have ever watched that bit that tore me to shreds see i would have said that until what i just finished watching yeah Uh, i i didn't think that you could outdo dexter but apparently yeah you can yeah um a whole lot about that tonight i'm guessing i wonder if she had a hand in that event uh, in Dexter, so that you know that, that you know this would appear to have the same fingerprints, or at least that she's hugely influenced by the people she worked with there. So yeah, Rosenberg has a very strong and clear idea, uh, or multiple ideas, on the depiction of female relationships on screen, like any interpersonal relationships, but very strongly, specifically, this is a female-led cast, and also with obsession with control. And this show deals with dark material unflinchingly. <laughs> So rather than going episode by episode, because we'd be here all year, let's just focus on, well, let's just, let us start with the jumping off point to focus on characters. And as we go, feel free to use each character to discuss themes from the show, like regret, fear and trauma, power and control, whatever you like. So, I mean, um, usually we tend to sort of like stick, keep the big characters for the end. Like we will discuss ancillary characters first. 
Um, and but oftentimes people have talked for so long they're knackered by the time we get to the lead <laughs> characters. So let us just jump straight in with Jessica Jones. And the floor is open. Try not to step on each other's toes. I know you're all very lovely, polite people. But uh, I will adjudicate, and then, like, uh, if two people speak at once, I'll I'll nominate whoever has spoken the least most recently. Fair enough. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Jessica Jones, go. Oh, you're all so polite. Oh, you're all so British. <laughs> um, Sharon, do you want to start with this one because you had an idea uh, regarding the portrayal of the psyche and of all the characters as elements of that? And do you want to start with how you perceived Jessica? Yeah, I. That was kind of how I started reading it. I have a tendency when there's a, an ensemble cast um, that rapidly proves to be incredibly excellent. Um, I often start trying to see how I can piece them together as um, sort of all being aspects of a, a single psyche, if you like. Um, now, generally speaking, the main protagonist um, is positioned to be the self, which Jessica actually works very well as in this because um, she is clearly fractured. She's got many different aspects of um difficulty and a handful of positive elements in her life that she's trying to hold all together um, and also particularly in the sense that she's working very hard to resolve um, the issues with her shadow which if you're if you're looking at the psyche um, and characters as, as psychic elements in terms of um, Jungian psychology the self is kind of the core of who you are um, and the shadow is almost like your your opposite but it's often represented as kind of a demon or an opponent it's it's basically the elements of yourself that you try really really hard to repress and as a result they have a tendency to leap out and bite you in the ass um and um so Kilgrave obviously was was positioned um perfectly to to be that role um which strengthened this sort of feeling of Jessica as being this sort of um the centre of this universe around which all things spin. Although as the series progresses, um, things start to widen and you start to get more of an idea of how other people feed into the intricate network that she is part of. Definitely. I, I, I've never encountered the everyone is an aspect of, of one individual before, but that's incredible. I, I really like that. And it... I, I don't know, you can maybe map that onto the narrative trajectory of the series, that her need to make that reconciliation is tied very specifically to the kind of really two-headed sword that the, the, the two-headed, two-sided sword that the series finishes with, where she gets the catharsis she desperately needs and she gets the last thing that she wants or thinks she wants at the same time, which is attention. And yeah, that's really interesting. I really like that. I I find it very interesting that Jessica's role, um, you talk about her as being like the ensemble cast largely working as parts of the whole. And I think that it's really interesting that the other characters that she surrounds herself with, as well as being other parts of the whole in terms of like a character study, also work as other parts of the whole when looking at different aspects of the struggle that Jessica and those other characters and some of the viewers have gone through where it is the different competing aspects of dealing with abuse where you've got the, you've got like Jessica, who is the person who's sort of 
largely wants to believe that she's she's over the abuse and that she's like, no, I'm fine until it rears its head again. And then it's like, no, this isn't something I'm done with. You've got other characters I'm sure we'll discuss later that are more on the sort of terms of very angry about what's happened and want to sort of point blame. And I think that as as much as the, the, the ensemble cast work as facets of the self, they also work as facets of what the self, uh, the, the primary narrative thread that the self is focused on going through. Yeah. I think um, another aspect of this character and, and Kristen Rita's performance that I found so compelling was so often when you deal with uh, this kind of subject matter uh, and and this kind of territory, there's a temptation to play up the fragility or damaged Mm -hmm. nature of the protagonist. Mm -hmm. And something both me and my girlfriend Kat mentioned um during you know, during watching the show is how strong jessica is she is a very powerful woman both physically and in terms of her personality but in the face of the kind of abuse that she is confronted with mm. she is still affected by that and it makes the threat that uh, she has to come to terms with in 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 this show much scarier because it's not about oh well she was taken advantage of it's about the fact that anyone could be taken advantage of this is not something that weak people fall victim to this is something anyone can fall victim to under the right circumstances yeah i think what oh sorry laura that's all right go on sharon um i was just gonna say the I, I loved that fact. I loved the fact that here was a character who has um, a, a lengthy period of abuse and specifically and particularly rape and sexual abuse as part mm. of her history. But it is not the thing that makes her interesting. It is yeah. not the thing that defines her. It governs her decisions to a degree and of course it informs on how she behaves in her everyday life but it is not who she is and she has so much other stuff going on as well that she's also trying to juggle. She is simultaneously trying to help other people, she is trying to maintain and hold down a job and maintain an apartment and you know give support to people where she can and get help from people where she needs it. She is a very whole person um, mm. with with many different facets to the way that she interacts with the world. Whereas I think it is it's incredibly common and incredibly lazy to have uh, specifically female characters who, because this bad thing has happened to them, that literally becomes all they are about. Yeah. Yes. And, go on, and- Laura, sorry. That's okay. I think there's one thing that's really, really important about like the way that the show is structured in terms of um, that being a part of the, the primary character, which is that we don't ever, at least in the first opening episodes, we don't see her go through that abuse. We don't see the origin story of how her villain it becomes her villain. All we see is, okay, this thing happened. It's in the past. It's not important. This is the character we need to focus on. The fact that they don't start before she's gone through the abuse that they don't make you go through that and see how like oh this is the thing that made her grow into a strong character no they're just like this is who she is she had some stuff in her past 
that's not where our story starts. Our story starts with the character themselves, not with what where they went through. And I think that that structuring and the sort of focus on showing the impact of abuse rather than the acts of abuse yeah. is a really important yeah. structuring point towards focusing on Jessica as like a well-rounded character rather than as an abuse victim who is strong because of the abuse. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's I mean, overwhelmingly, I think this show actually has an opinion and a point that it's trying to get across about the subject matter it's talking about. It's not using rape and abuse as a way to get an 18 rating and get the 15-year-old boys to watch it. Like This is a show where they want to seriously examine the effects this mm. kind of abuse has on people. And I think focusing on the abuse itself sometimes actually kind of... I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but kind of um, doesn't allow that. Salacious. Yeah, but it, 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 it also experience. Yeah, and 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 also it doesn't allow the important conversation to actually happen, which is mm. what what damage does this cause? What what? How do these people who commit these acts think? How do they justify this to themselves? How do people who've dealt with this deal with this years after? And how does that affect their relationships with other people? Yeah. And the fact that it focuses on the stuff that is actually the most important... I, I don't know... The, the stuff that's actually the the most horrific parts of this kind of abuse like the aftermath um it makes it more unsettling than anything i've ever seen that's tackled the subject matter while not it's not that a shock not being gratuitous yeah. it's not gratuitous it's it's unsettling it's it's definitely frightening but it's it's actually making a point while doing that and that, that in turn sets up a feedback loop of sorts where because it's not gratuitous, it actually has more impact. Um, yes. One, yeah. one of the, the moments which I found, and there were a lot of these, but one of the moments I found hardest to sit through was the two very different versions of what Kilgrave cites as the 18 seconds where she loved him. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Because that is an incredibly clear and brave piece of script writing that he is so venal and so divorced from reality that what he sees and what she sees are completely different. Yeah. But also the fact that they've already set up the idea through um, a conversation that I believe Jerry has that what he remembers and what she remembers, the truth of what happened, lies somewhere in the middle. And it's kind mm. of almost up to the audience to work out where exactly. they think the truth really lies. The scripting refuses to provide black and white. In fact, I have an observation about that point I can come back to. But the, the scripting refuses to take a middle ground. It forces people to realize that although everyone has an opinion, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. The point I wanted to come back to, and it's one I actually now want to go back and watch and just realize, I do not think I have ever seen Jessica wear any clothing aside from jeans other than black and white. Yes. She, I mean, obviously it's she never wears purple, and no. we can have a whole, she we could probably have a whole two hours about just color use. Mm. in this series yeah but she's uh, always in black or white yeah other than denim she never wears another primary color outside of black and white and denim 
if I could kind of take a step back on um, the, the, the discussion Sharon was having about the psyche and the different roles people play, and then we kind of transitioned on to the idea that, you know, abuse does not define what makes a strong woman a woman dealing with abuse is kind of the center point of the show the show also does a very good job of refusing to let any single individual fall into the stereotype of the role that you want them to be in mm-hmm. a really good example is it's simpson right the the call yes. exactly yeah. mm-hmm. my, one of my favorite lines is i had fun but that doesn't mean i want your opinion <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they do a very good job of he is not going to come in and white knight the situation. Mm, he, that's not yeah. what his role is there to do. Malcolm is not there just to be the care provider at the end of the show. He has his own agency and his own motivations. I mean, even the neighbor whose name I don't remember because I really don't like that character <laughs> has her own. Robin. Robin. Yeah, yeah. has her own you know you want to be able to just dismiss this woman as insane but she's not because you have to look and listen and the show makes it very clear that although there are common experiences shared between this group of people every single one of them deals with the situation in their own way and no one way is right Mm. yes and And they're very powerful and every possible way of dealing with it has its own drawbacks. And that even includes for our protagonist. It's like, no matter what way you deal with it, there will always be some lingering regret of, could I have found a better way of dealing with this? Was that was I doing what was better for me long-term? Was I doing what's going to be most like personally fulfilling right now? Exactly. There's always that element of doubt over, did I do the right thing? And there's never any clear-cut answer. Like, no, even... I think it's really important to note, like on that note, that um, it would be so easy with like the main character of Jessica being a character who is an abuse victim to at some point say, yes, she is in the right here. Like her perspective on what happened is right or her opinion on this position is right. And it pretty much never does that. It no, always no. it always provides a counterpoint to her perspective where her actions or her interpretation of events there is always someone who views it differently and she's never said to be like yes this is the correct response or this is the correct perspective to have yeah and that, any one particular choice is never right i mean the well, perfect yeah. example of that is the bar mm. Mm. it's yeah there's what there's one thing i wanted to sort of wind back a little bit to and this was when we were talking about um in terms of little moments that portray um the way that this show actually tackles the subject of of abuse rather than just having it as a point that's present. And there was a note I made while I was watching this and it was during the, the the first episode where Jessica is staying with Kilgrave and it's where she outright says that he's a rapist. And I think what's really sort of interesting here is I tried to draw parallels between that and a video game that I recently went back and replayed, which was um, the Tomb Raider game from 2013 and mm-hmm. what I thought's really interesting comparing the two is one of them shows a scene of abuse and with no context says, okay, the character is different now because that happened. Whereas here you've got like a character who's undergone abuse that we never see, but having names. a, f- yeah, well, yeah, it's, you, you don't see them undergoing like this particular event of, of rape, but you do see 
them getting to confront their attacker and to say, no, what you did is rape. I don't care if you took me to nice places. I don't care if you did this and that. It is still rape. And mm. it's that as a show, it not only shows this is the act, the person's different now, it doesn't show the act and it allows a conversation to happen about what happened. And I think that that is infinitely more powerful in terms of ways to represent that kind of content. I think mm. it's also important that they, they demonstrate that Kilgrave is not the only influence on Jessica. Um, mm, yeah. And this is, this is something that occurred to me when I was sort of writing notes on the various different characters. Basically, everybody is messed up in a different way. And although a lot of it is to do with things that Kilgrave has done to people, not all of it by a long shot. And in Jessica's case, you have this, um, this very, very traumatic event that has obviously kicked off her whole story, which is the, the car accident that killed her parents and her brother. And it occurred to me, because she very early on in, this, in the show, I think in the very first episode, very early on, she comes right out and says it's not my damn PTSD. She acknowledges that this is something that she has, this is something that she experiences, and this is something she's trying to deal with. And I think you you kind of, or at least I did initially, assume that that is all tied in with Kilgrave. However, because she has this previous traumatic event as well, that single thing would be enough to trigger PTSD in somebody anyway. You mm. then layer what has then happened to her on top of that, and what you have is somebody who's... Um, whose psychological issues are compounded and they're not simple and they're not straightforward and it's not a case of this will help with this one thing because it's yeah. become such a tangled knot that the unpicking of it has to be so multi-directional that it can't help but be fascinating, at least not to me. And mm -hmm. I, I think to do that with one character would have been impressive. The fact that they managed to do it with multiple characters is incredibly mm. so. Exactly. Yeah, because yeah, like even just, just with Jessica alone, you've got Kilgrave, but you've also got the um, adoptive mother and you've got all the flashback scenes regarding sort of her first awareness of oh goodness i'm being adopted for a publicity stunt and then all the stuff that goes on with her adoptive sister and mm. there are like there are so many varying characters that have had very different impacts on her but it, it's not all just blamed on the one person there is just this wider spread of there are lots of different types of abuse that can affect people in different ways and not everyone's limited to just one sometimes you can have more than one thing that convalesces into some kind of larger issue to later deal with in life. Mm -hmm. And just even the variety you have in the amount of awareness of that situation between mm. characters. For example, it, it, it's always very striking to me that when Luke's early scenes with Jessica, he is very, I don't want to say introspective, but he is very fresh in his trauma and that he automatically assumes like in his dialogue with Jessica, he assumes that people are having racial issues with him or that they can handle the, the lack of his wife. He's very self-focused and self-present in his drama. And you compare that with somebody like Malcolm, for example, who once he confronts and realizes of his own trauma, he almost completely lays very, very quickly. And he throws himself into recovery to the point where you almost wonder if that's intentional or if that's its own coping mechanism. And which in turn falls back into the thing, the set 
point several people have already made. This is a show which does nothing you expect with any of its characters. Malcolm is, is at least initially, a classic trope. He's the junkie neighbor who's going to screw up and eventually overdose. And the fact that once he gets turned around, he's got stuff to deal with, but he's calm and he's focused and healthy and continually reaches out to help other people is just one of the smallest facets of, of, like I say, the show's refusal to take any of the easy answers with its narrative. Mm, and in in fear of um, veering too far away from Jessica, because I know that's who we're still on, I think what's also really interesting with um, with Malcolm as a character that like kind of weaves back into this is the fact that they they don't take the easier answer of again blaming everything on Kilgrave, and it's the same thing we have with this discussion of Jessica. It's like yes, I was being controlled by Kilgrave but only 12 hours a day. 12 hours a day, I was not under his control, and I didn't do anything about that. And that it it makes all of its questions are, as we said, very complex. It's like, yes, there is some blame to be put here, but what do we do about this difficult bit of the of the conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think as well, there's, there's never any sense of, and I think this probably evolves from the whole there not being a black and white answer about things, there are characters that I think you could argue um, are healthier than others psychologically mm-hmm. and in terms of looking at the spectrum, but those people will still sometimes behave in ways which are not so healthy. And the people that you think are making, you, you might think initially are making a complete mess of things, actually sometimes they respond to, to situations in a way which is which results in the best outcome for everybody, at least the best that you could have in that scenario. Um, but I think this this idea that there is no blame. If you make a certain choice and you follow through on that choice and you deal with the consequences of that choice, ultimately it doesn't matter that that might not have been the ideal choice. You have to mm-hmm. handle things in life as they are presented to you. You don't have an overview that means you know how this is going to end. There is no right decision. Um, and I think yeah. that the one of the, the major issues that, that came through to me, and I, I've got a feeling that a lot of this stems from the fact that um, Melissa Rosenberg grew up in a house full of psychologists and therapists. Um, the majority <laughs> of her family is in that line of work. Um, so this is something that she would have been surrounded by most of her life. Um, but this idea that, um, that psychological trauma... Um, that mental illness, abusive relationships, things which have um, impact on who you are and how you see the world at your very core, the power that that is in those situations a lot of the time is to do with self-doubt, is to do with the fact that it makes you question every choice you make, Mm. every thought you have, every action that you, you take. You're thinking at some point, you, it's going to occur to you, was that me or was that the illness? Was that me or was that Kilgrave? Was mm. that me or was that the fact that I was reacting to a trauma that happened five years ago? And and it's the fact that there is no, or there can be, not that there is no, because sometimes there is, but there can be circumstances in which you have no clarity about why you've done what you've done and then you end up in this cycle of you know you berating yourself for that and I thought it was incredibly refreshing that there was no sense of you know you screwed up here because you made the wrong choice and and that's your fault none of that I felt in any of the um, the examination of the situations that were being dealt with 
And yeah. I think that's what adds to the overall intensity just of the show itself. There's never catharsis. You mm. never get that sensation that something's resolved in a way that leaves you with a sense of maybe not even peace, but just ease mm -hmm. there. And it's not even the classic constant ratcheting of tension that you would associate with build up to, you know, whatever climax of a series is going to come up with. It's every single event leaves, like you said, Sharon, it leaves that bit of doubt, which compounds and compounds and compounds. And it makes the viewing of it. I mean, I am not someone who has ever suffered from physical abuse. I have been in relationships that were psychologically difficult. Um, there was one, we specifically broke up viewing of the episodes into two episode chunks. After one night we watched three and neither one of us slept. Yeah. Yeah. Because there was just no conclusion. There was no sense of closure. It was impossible to emotionally step away from the subject mm. matter. And when you think about that from the point of view of someone who's at a distance watching the show, you can kind of empathize with the characters, especially ones who start to, in my opinion, as they go on, they start to make unwiser and unwiser decisions. And you realize that so much of that may be based on this compounding sense of a lack of catharsis, this compounding mm -hmm. sense of doubt. Yeah. I, Sorry, go on. I kind of wonder whether that's why she never bothers fixing her door after it's broken the second time. I think that's exactly why she never fit bothers with it. Uh, I, I got more and more fascinated with that in, in the background of episodes because it became such a running gag. That I think she I think she and Trish are attacked three times by three separate people, groups of people in order in the apartment. And every time she leaves, she reaches back through the broken window and locks the door. And that's such a for me this that rings with an awful lot of thematic resonance mm -hmm. that there's the fact that you know she's constantly rolling with whatever the, the next punch is going to be thrown it's and, she she wants to have some level of control but she yes. knows that ultimately she feels like ultimately it's it's pointless which is why and she locks it for her control but she doesn't bother with the glass exactly the apartment's such a beautiful analogy for that it's mm -hmm. shitty and broken and unsafe but i know it and it's mine yes mm. yeah and in, and in particular the very last shot the kind of pullback shot down the corridor with her framed by the broken window and she's doing that thing that Kristen Ritter does so well, where she just sits completely still and glowers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and there's so much tied up in that. That that door is open. The, the closest thing that she's got to, to catharsis is that she's mm -hmm. sitting in, in her office looking at the elevator, knowing that something else is going to come, but she's going to see it coming this time. Well, what I think also plays really nicely into that is her anger when someone else tries to fix the glass for her. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. that moment of, no, you are not allowed to tell me that, that things are okay now and that I have my moment of closure. Like, you can't fix that glass for me and pretend it's not going to break again. Mm -hmm. I have to decide I am ready to fix that glass. That's not for you to decide. And I thought, again, that's really, really powerful moment of that. Yeah, absolutely. Completely. Mm. Uh, uh, go ahead sorry oh there's uh, yeah if you've got a point that's on this continue I, my thing's a bit of a left turn go for it um my, my only point was that again it's it's one of the things that where the show kind of does the last thing you would expect where the point where the guys come to fix the door is played as comedy mm. and it's one of the few legitimate lo deliberate jokes in the entire series 
And again, it ties into, as you say, the, the thing of her having control of her space taken away from her and how badly yeah. she reacts to that. Um, I have a bit of a left turn to make with with just uh, talking about Jessica. And it's something that I think was really important for grounding this in terms of its subject matter, which is that like having thought through the episode list um, a second time, I don't think there's ever really a moment in the show where Jessica needs to have superpowers. Like yeah. she, she is able to fight some people off in some fight scenes at times. She at one point uses it to escape a situation by doing her sort of flying jump, but it's very rarely relevant to her as a character or the, the way that she deals with situations. The focus is always on the, the dealing with situations in the same way that any other human could. And I think that's really important considering the subject matter being such a relatable theme. I mean, I feel like the powers in this show are less here for action sequences and mm. more here for metaphor and uh, allegory. Um, that especially so with Kilgrave, which we'll get onto. Yeah. But um, having Jessica be this incredibly powerful being sold the threat that uh, Kilgrave, uh, Kilgrave represented even mm. more. Because it, if she was just, you know, a normal person and still had that personality, that still would have worked. That would have been great. But it exaggerates uh, an aspect of her personality to make it clear to the audience that this isn't this isn't a pushover. This is somebody who can handle themselves, and yet still they fall mm. victim to this person that so many people fall victim to that so many people have encountered i think her her abilities are part of what draws him to pursue her yeah um he sees her as a a challenge um and you know somebody who is strong for him to break down and prove how strong he is by comparison um and also the fact that uh, she has something within her that he can use. And it, as well as it illuminating a lot about how he sees people and how he sees the world, again, I think you've got that, um, that <coughs> metaphor for um, the, the typical, um, I suppose, or stereotypical abuse victim is this you know, poor, weak little woman who allows somebody to walk all over her. And a lot of the time, people who are subject to um, long-term abusive relationships are in fact incredibly strong people. And mm. that in a way is kind of what can keep them in that situation for as long as they stay because they keep thinking, no, I'm strong. I can handle this. They What's keep going think- wrong? Well, Why am I not handling this? They keep thinking the thing that Jessica has in the middle of the season where she's like, I can stay with this person and fix them. Yes. And the I can I yeah. can I can survive this situation and make something better out of it. Yeah. I can, and as long as he's yeah. going after me, he's not going after somebody. He's not who's going weaker. after some, so someone. So I weaker, will yeah. put myself in that sacrificial position, and I will keep him busy to keep him off everybody else. And it doesn't work. And that's nope. beautiful and brave yeah. writing that it, it doesn't is. work. Yeah. Yeah. But that's I guess my th- my thinking is more that uh, less that she doesn't need to have those powers in general because there is definitely a benefit to it. But I think the fact that the fact that her powers are so sort of restrained in their presentation, that they are so rarely the focus of anything. Mm. It basically, it kind of takes away from that problem you often have with superhero shows when these are not the problems of humans. These are the problems of mighty thunder gods and billionaire playboy philanthropists with metal (laughs) robot suits. And like, it's, 
it, it kind of just settles smashed, it down. Solve problem. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. This is like this is not the problems of gods. This is the problems that people who are much easier to relate with do have to deal with, even if they are incredibly strong people. Yeah. Yes. But I think there, also the that, oh, sorry, go on. The, the, there's a point that kind of speaks to, to both the kind of very grounded problems and, and the use of powers. And it's something which I, I kept noticing all the way through the show. Jessica and Luke fight in exactly the same way, unless they're fighting mm-hmm. someone powered. If it's a normal human being, Jessica in particular has one thing. She throws people away from her. Yeah. She's mm-hmm. working incredibly hard all the time on not having to hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. It's well. all about maintaining distance, and it's all about refusing to be in the situation that she's in when she murders Reva. I, and, I, oh, sorry, go on. And the fight with Luke in the last couple of episodes is so completely different to that because it's all close in. It's all the pair of them just pounding on each other and because then she knows he can take it. And Luke, in the two or three times we see him fight, does something very similar. He, and there's, there's an interesting secondary character beat to that where he's annoyed uh, the the bar fight, and I think the second episode is genuinely very funny because the look on Mike Coulter's face for the whole of it is God again. <laughs> <laughs> you think they would learn? <laughs> I I think there's one really interesting thing that you mentioned to touch on, which was this idea that um, keeping restrained with powers until you're facing someone who also has powers, and then not feeling like you need to be as restrained. I think there are really interesting uh, comparisons to be made there with. Uh, Kilgrave's conversation with Jessica about his need to be very careful about every word he says and then potentially looking at why he went after Jessica is she's someone else with powers she can she can handle this I don't have to be so restrained and I think that there are some interesting if scary parallels there yeah absolutely and there's there's also with with Jessica and Luke there's a parallel between how they fight, and in particular how they fight each other, and also between uh, between that and how they have sex. Oh, yes. Mm. We need to talk about that, okay? We know when you're ready to talk about Best sex scene ever. <laughs> Free to talk wants, about sex. Yeah, who wants to talk about the sex scene? Who's going to take that mantle and run with it? All right, okay. By all means, my favorite facial expression ever on his face is the moment he realizes she is stronger than he is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely everything about their dynamic changes in that single widening of eyes. Because it becomes much more... It's not even at that point about gender. It's certainly not about race because there is none of that dynamic, which is such a refreshing change. But it's the idea that there that he is now out of control, and this is a man who is desperate and to be in control for his own psychological health. It's about the fact that he allows himself to not be in control. It's about trust. I mean, you can you can do a lot with that scene. Mm. And what I really like about that scene is that he is never portrayed as weak during it. Mm-hmm. Someone else is stronger than him, but that at no point portrays him as weak. He yeah. never seems to fear that he is weak because of that comparison. It's just a fact that someone else is stronger yeah. and that he doesn't uh, have to worry because of that. 
famous Joss Whedon quote, acknowledging someone else's strength does not diminish mm. your own. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a sex scene that acknowledges that fact. And yeah, that's yeah, funny. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Any sex scene that involves broken furniture automatically gets my attention. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, just before we move on from the sex scenes, um, I just like that the sex scenes were just depicted as fun as well. Mm, yeah. Often often sex scenes are kind of like, oh, it's this loving moment and violins are playing in the background. No. It was just the, two uh, people. Daredevil sex scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is this is two people just enjoying each other and having a lot of fun, and that was great to see. And I think sure. more important than just like the the moment of like lovey dovey, this is the thing because they're having sex moments. I think it's really important that this is a, a an abuse narrative that never, when it has a sex scene, feels the need to be like, okay, we have to do the scene where they talk about taking it slow and they both talk in bed about their abuse and the whole scene becomes about their abuse. It's like no, they've they're both people who've had messed up stuff happen in their lives, they can still have fun, casual sex sometimes when they consent to that. I'd also Uh, like to point out that 13 episodes and there was no nudity of either gender. I think that was a Marvel stipulation. I mean, I have a feeling that Melissa Rosenberg possibly would have gone that route anyway, but I actually think having no nudity made them a lot more creative in how they shot those scenes and it made Mm. them much more interesting than they could have been. And good lord, I want Trish's sheets. She's got really <laughs> oh, nice yeah. pants, man. <laughs> oh. Like that. that but they're not. Like, Alex oh. pointed out they're not L-shaped sheets. They're not those weird sheets that only cover up the top half of the woman, but not the <laughs> yes, man. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There was one point when they both lay back, and the sheet was exactly parallel on on them on them both. They're just there's the. Should we talk about Luke next, actually? Because he's a, he's a great character to, yeah. to move on to. Um, uh, uh, who's familiar with the original... Sorry to bring it back to comic books. but uh, uh. Uh, Who's familiar with the original Luke Cage character? Slightly more than I maybe should be. <laughs> uh, anyone want to go on this one? Because I'm not an expert on, on Luke. Luke is really interesting because he's one of those characters. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> He's one of those characters like Iron Fist, who will will get late next year, who is absolutely transparent, uh, an absolutely transparent embodied embodiment of his time. Mm-hmm. He, when he was first created and set loose on the Marvel universe, was shaft. Yeah, he, he was shaft. In <laughs> a, he had a fro, child of the eighties. He, yeah. he, he had a fro. He had a gold lame shirt open to the navel. I believe he briefly had a medallion, and he basically talked in jive. And he was not good at (laughs) all. Um, And then he's one of those characters that they fix in post a lot. He (laughs) showed up in the 1990s a good deal uh, with because he and Danny Rand, the guy who's going to be in Iron Fist, worked together an awful lot. Uh, and the 1990s run with them was really interesting in that kind of generic, we know we want to do something, but we're not quite sure what way that all Marvel comics below the, A- the A-list characters in the 1990s were. This is while their A-list character was going through his clone saga. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and then Bendis basically, and I mean, Bendis gets an awful lot of flack and some of it's deserved, but Luke is legitimately one of his success stories. Bendis basically looked at him and went, no, he's great. No one's used him properly. And fixed him and turned him into almost exactly the guy we see in this series, in that he's 
he has a dubious past, but he's a fundamentally decent, extremely, extremely emotionally complex human being. And I, I have a couple of friends who are uh, black guys who work in comics in, in the US, and they were genuinely moved by how Luke was portrayed. One of them actually, I was chatting to him on Twitter, and he said, this is the man I've waited years to see. This is the Luke I've always had in my head. I, I was amazed at the balance between strength and sensitivity, that you don't see that very often. Yeah. Not in a, <laughs> to, to, not to, in a central to, hero figure. Exactly. Luke is incredibly, incredibly unbalanced. He's very... Oh, I'm trying to come up with the right word. Uh, anyway, he's broken. <laughs> Emotionally, yeah. he is a difficult, broken person, but physically he's perfect. And so much of that, yes, all, so much of his portrayal is him struggling to deal with that emotional insecurity with his physical strength. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think the main reason why I find him so compelling is rather than being the perfect man, he's a man trying to be the best he can possibly be. And some of his negative qualities do come out in situations that are completely understandable, uh, you know, specifically uh, anything to do with his wife and, mm-hmm. and that, that trauma and, and the people involved with that. But, his constant, uh, you know, he constantly is striving towards an ideal rather than being the ideal, which makes him way more interesting. And just having, like, characters who have, like, a code or principles rather than just being perfect are, are always more compelling anyway. Just, like, a little moment that ma- it was a bit of comedy, but um, says speaks volumes about Luke as a person, was the scene where um, uh, Jessica asks him, what happened to the dogs? Are they okay? And he says, of course they're okay. I don't hurt dogs. And just that, <laughs> that, that it's funny, and, and you laugh at that moment, but also it says something about Luke that he doesn't do anything violent that's unnecessary mm-hmm. like he doesn't need to smack these dogs because the dogs are just going to break their teeth on him anyway so yeah. all he has to do is to calm them down and, and i don't know put them in a little cage or something and hush hush okay bye bye it's but, such like, a turnabout i'm so sorry to interrupt josh yeah um, no problem yeah. Uh, it's such a turnabout from his uh, character originally where he was basically an angry mr t type guy yeah, yeah. um <laughs> that he's incredibly gentle you know with the people that he doesn't need to be uh, um aggressive with because uh, as you say he well hang on let me just rewind this a little bit um he doesn't have to feel afraid of the rest of the world it's it's kind of it's kind of the flip side of jessica who whenever she walks into the street um she's got that wariness about her and that 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 sense of of, of being watched or being followed and all that that uh, the idea that she could be jumped at any moment the feeling that she's being assaulted by the world i sympathize but luke lives in a situation where if the world assaults him he can shrug it off and it really the way he relates to the world entirely depends on his reaction Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one thing that I, I kind of picked up on with Luke and um, this may just be me, um, but I kind of see him as 
the exact opposite of the idea of the embodiment of toxic masculinity, um, mm. the idea that um, that you have a, a frame of mind frequently seen in men where they are afraid and they are afraid to be afraid and therefore they project this image that they think is strength because they're so terrified of letting anything get even close to being able to hurt them. The way Luke looks at the world is... Nothing can hurt him physically. Nothing can break his skin. Nothing can um, can affect him. And he is strong enough to deflect pretty much anything that tries. Emotionally, the worst thing that could possibly happen to him has happened. happened. Yeah. How much, what else can they do to me, basically? And so he steps out into the world completely unafraid. And what you said, Alex, about... Um, uh, Jessica being somebody who basically neither advertises nor hides who she is. Um, and I would say Luke is the same, but even more so. He just is. He is in his bar. He does what, not necessarily everything that he wants to do, but he just exists in a state where he is at a relative position of peace with his surroundings. Um and yet he knows that he has to interact with the rest of the world in a, a meaningful way. And one mm. of the things that I, I mentioned to you, Alex, was that he, when he rides the motorbike, he puts a helmet on. Mm. He doesn't yes. need yeah. to put a helmet on, but he knows that if he doesn't, somebody's going to stop him. It's mm. interesting that you refer to that as peace, that, that Luke is kind of at peace. The worst has happened to him emotionally and nothing can happen to him physically. I don't see that as peace. I see him as numb. He is the mm-hmm. definition of stasis. I I think he thinks he's numb. And I think that's really interesting when you see sort of his early interactions with uh, Jessica and when you first realize like he doesn't have any guards up because he thinks that he's numb and he thinks the worst that can happen has already happened. And then he has his moment of, oh, I let myself trust someone else and now I've realized that this person's involved in the worst thing that could have happened to me. Like, yeah. he lets his guard down because he thinks he's numb, and that's what opens him up during this series to continue getting hurt. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting, because, like, for a character who could just very easily have been the character who's emotionally numb, who it's like, nothing's going to hurt me because I've already been hurt as much as I can, the show's not afraid to be like, no, you've let your guard down, you can still be hurt here you've trusted someone you're going to be hurt because of that and it's it's interesting how that's played out yeah and also you can still hurt others yes and mm. that may be even worse for you and that recurs with a number of characters as well it was refreshing for me to see um a character display anger but from um a different kind of uh, place than we normally see anger because often when a show explores uh, rage um it's it's usually with characters who are already hot-headed um whereas uh Luke is a, a, most of the time has a cool head on his shoulders he's got a thick skin both uh <laughs> literally and yeah. uh, figuratively um, and just to see that more, that more uncommon um, uh, type of rage that we uh, we d- don't often see in media of the the cool headed guy bubbling over with rage the yeah. the rage just that just you've been pushing down into your core and you just let so many small things slide but now you've suddenly got a real like 
a real excuse to demonstrate exactly how scary and angry you can yeah. be when and given true justification. Um, it, that was really refreshing. Even, it's not even necessarily true justification. It's giving him somewhere to point that. And yeah. I think what's really interesting about that episode where he's like, okay, this is the person, the the driver that's responsible for your wife's death. Um, and initially he points the all this anger at the driver. He very calmly goes after this person. He's like, right. I have all this anger. I'm going to direct it at you. Oh, it's not you. It's Jessica that's at fault, right? I'm going to redirect it over there now. And it, it feels like it's not necessarily that he, that it's about him having a righteous place to point that. It's that he needs somewhere. And I, that I mean, as long as there is somewhere for him to point it, it's, yeah. it's, it's like he's been given the opportunity to let it out and it needs to go somewhere. Now. I, I think, I think when I say righteous and justified, I mean mm. specifically from Luke's perspective. I, I only, mm. I only bring this up because, um, I, I feel like my anger works very similarly in yeah. that I just let shit slide all the time and, uh, kind of just, okay, I'm not, I just can't be bothered to deal with this. And then when actually something very real and harmful happens, that's when the anger yeah. comes out. Yeah. And uh I, and and it's not when uh, when you think about it afterwards, when you think about it in the aftermath, often you didn't have justification that it was wrong and actually you could have handled that situation a lot better. Yes. But but you in can the explain mo- to yourself in the moment at the time. You feel righteous yeah. in your anger in a way that can be borderline psychopa- yeah. psychopathic in a way. And and seeing that in Luke's eyes was really yeah. uh, scary for me personally in a lot of ways. Yeah, like at the time there is a an explanation you can give for why you did it. Yeah. And that there is a an explanation. It doesn't matter if that explanation changes during the time. It's like, this is the reason, this is where the anger is going. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I the other thing I think is really interesting about Luke is that he plays two very different sides of like every aspect he plays. I think this is a big thing for all the characters. In that, like um, one thing that jumped to mind while we were talking about this was he plays the at times he plays the support role for Jessica. At other times, he needs Jessica to be his support role. Yeah, and that there's all these in like. Every every time he is one extreme of a behavior or an um, emotion or a role within the the narrative and the dynamics, that will get flipped at some point in the narrative and he will play the other side as well. Mm. And that he is both the the solid, strong rock whilst also being the person who needs the solid, strong rock. And I think that's really interesting to see. It's especially nice that Rosario Dawson's character in Daredevil is called Claire, isn't she? Yes. Yes. It's especially nice that Claire nails their their dynamic on about two minutes. Two minutes acquaintance during which Luke is completely unconscious. Just the thing about, oh, no, 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 you go save her. She has to save you. You know, and she she makes explicit the the dynamic you mentioned there in the series, that these two are just going to spend the rest of their lives swapping roles. Hmm. And, and it's that was commentary on her own previous experience with, with Matt. Matt. Exactly. Yeah. And that it's not portrayed as inherently good or bad. It is just what it is. It, it exactly. is what it is. The, the two of you will go back and forth supporting each other, and that's just the situation you have. Yeah. That yeah. is the nature of your relationship. And if hmm. it works for you, then it works for you. I trust you all know who uh, Patsy Walker was originally going to be in the writing. Yes. Hellcat? 
Ah, yeah. oh, some ah. of you don't know quite yet. Okay. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, anyone else not know but want to take a guess? Oh, I know who she was. Okay. Right. Uh, and Alistair, you must know. Yes, sir. Laura? Yep. Okay. Uh, it, it seems that it's, it's just uh, you then, uh, Josh. Uh, for the folks at home and, and for Josh, uh, Carol Danvers... Captain Marvel herself. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, And then Marvel. Very much frustrated me because Carol Danvers is Jennifer Walters' best friend, and I'm desperate to see her show up in the MCU. And and being in Brooklyn would have been perfect. Yeah. Hasn't happened yet. Uh, But since Marvel are going to uh, launch some, it kind of makes sense that if if Marvel are going to launch Captain Marvel in a few years' time, they're going to do it with a mega, mega star that everybody knows and that everyone needs to get extremely excited about. If there's a sense of, uh, she'll mean more to you if you've seen these Netflix shows, then that's already they're on the back foot. Um, Which is a damn shame because her character would make a cracking Captain Marvel. I can't help but think that i'd have personally loved to see her in the tv in the netflix series is yeah perhaps more than i would in the movies i don't know i think it's going to depend on how they cast her and what they want to do with her because i still think there's plenty of overlap possibility and at the same I come to these shows with an interesting background. I am a huge champions dork, as in the (laughs) old hero system role-playing game. Mm -hmm. And that game is based on two different levels. There is the superheroic, you know, Thor and Captain America and Iron Man level. Mm -hmm. And there is street level. And Jessica Jones and Hellcat and Luke Cage and all of this is that missing street level, which I find emotionally much more relatable to. Mm sort of experience there are characters who can't like carol danvers who could fall into either camp you can put her street Mm -hmm. level or you can put her in the phenomenal cosmic power level but i want to jessica jones has the itty bitty living space so (laughs) i want to see more of the street level characters i want to see miss marvel I want to see, I was desperately trying to make connections between the two Russian guys who were repairing Jessica's door Mm -hmm. and the (laughs) shitty tenement building that Hawkeye runs in Brooklyn. You know, I want to see, uh, what's her name? The girl with the bow who gets it from Hawkeye with black hair. Hawkeye. Kate Bishop, yeah. Yeah. That level of character, I think there's huge amount of scope for. And we already know, I think, where that crossover is going to happen. And his name is Phil Coulson. Mm-mm. It's almost a shame that Hawkeye is so big in the movies because, uh, yeah, as you say, as a character, he's Marvel's arrow. It makes oh. perfect sense that they could do a long-running series, but it's almost like Jeremy Renner wouldn't be up for that. I feel like so many of the people that were in um, Captain America 2 who weren't Captain America or Bucky would have made great additions to the street-level mm. Marvel Universe. Because yeah. those comic books are so fun. I mean, the whole sequence mm. with Hawkeye playing a bass simulator being chased by the police... And Black Widow giving him crap about it, and the phenomena that is Pizza Dog. Where is it? You know, I want that street level level, I, that street level experience really fleshed out in these universes. This is how desperate we, we are to actually have Pizza Dog in the MCU. 
the dog that runs onto one of the evac sleds in Sokovia at the end of Age of Ultron. We've decided he adopts that, and it becomes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I just love that sentence that we're so desperate to have pizza dog in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> I love that that is a sentence that comic books have made possible. <laughs> We, we got we got a bit off track from no, sorry. Jessica no, no, Jones. I'm going to go back to Cassie <laughs> in just a bit. Uh, I, I would ask though, Marguerite, where does Ghost Rider sit? Is he phenomenal cosmic powers or is he <gasps> living space? No, he's a rubbish concept that they need to do something with. Yeah. I, it kind of feels like he would best fit in with Doctor Strange and probably wouldn't fit in with the Defenders now, especially since they're going down serious Let's stuff. see what they do with Punisher. Hmm. Mm. And kind of take it from there because so those cool. two characters, uh, at least thematically, it's, are very similar, and they'll either draw more similarities between them or they'll attempt to differentiate them, which would kind of indicate that one is going to go to a more cosmic power level than the other. Is oh. Punisher confirmed now for Daredevil season oh, yes. two? Yes, yes, I, yes. I, I, I thought so. Yeah, it's uh, Shane from Walking Dead. Yeah. Oh, okay. Isn't um, lovely rubbish Irishman? Uh, Constantine. Also Constantine. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Oh, the yeah. Punisher. Darn. Dylan Moran as the Punisher is going to make me smile for the rest of the of the year. <laughs> what, what, what is the point of all of this organized crime? It's just too tiring. Uh, question, though. Um, there's a no, sorry, question, statement. There is a link between Ghost Rider and Jessica Jones. It's Nicolas Cage who named himself after Luke Cage. Oh, are you serious? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, is he? Oh player? man! No, Cal L. Cage is a human being who is walking this earth. <laughs> That's amazing. And he must love Marvel DC crossover. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, my intellectual property lawyer senses are tingling <laughs> just as we speak. I, I don't think you can put a copyright claim against a human being, so we're we're, we're probably okay. There may be a few more baby Jessica Joneses out there in the next year or so. That's not such a bad thing, though. Yeah. 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 Okay, right. So to Trish. Sorry, I, I put us off track there. Right. Um, now, this is a character who started off being her um, her best friend and then by the end kind of, for me, became more like her sister, which was a, an unusual turnabout because they're, they're, they're very, they, they don't get any less close at any point, but just as the ties between them became more apparent, it, it just seemed like she was her, her rock. Um, you guys want to go on Trish because I, you've been doing so fantastically well so far. I, I feel like Trish is the, the, the rock that Jessica doesn't want to acknowledge. She has, mm. I think she is the point of weakness in her life that she knows can be exploited, that she doesn't want to acknowledge. And I think that the finale very well captures that. And I've seen some people say that that felt like the, the her being the person that's sort of uh, captured and used as the threat at the end felt a little out of nowhere for them. I think it made perfect sense because mm-hmm. this is the character that the whole way through this, Jessica doesn't want to make it obvious that this is the person who she emotionally relies on being a stable point in her life. So kind of like a more subtle, advanced version of the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man of... Uh, yeah, yeah. She's she's that point in her life that she knows she can always come back to if she needs someone to support her. Like, she may be a last resort, like, if I have to, I'll come back to you in some regards. But equally, mm-hmm. it's 
I rely on you more than you know, as is sort of epitomized by that ending. Mm. But at the same time, Trish the first person just to for help in the, at the very beginning of the show. Well, yeah, she is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the, I, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. It's, it's weird that at the very beginning of the show, she does run to her first in the middle of the show. She goes considerably further down her list of people. And I don't know if you yeah. agree, but like my reading on that was things are getting very dangerous for me. I'm going to rely on other people who, like, I'm going to rely on... Specifically the, Luke like, at that point. Yeah. yeah, well, Luke, who's got powers, I'm going to rely on other people. Like, she, she, stops, will. she stops relying on, on Trish when the stakes get much higher and much yeah. more dangerous. And I interpreted that as her not wanting to risk losing Trish. She mm. goes to Trish for things that, that she can do without getting too involved. Yes. Um, and mm. uh, right up until the end. And one of the things I loved about the way the end was framed was that although, yes, you could interpret that as um, Trish having to be thrown under the bus so that Jessica can execute her plan, mm-hmm. it's Trish's choice. There is never any doubt about that. She goes in Absolutely. there knowing mm. what she's getting herself into and entirely willing to get herself into it. That's what um, you argued about Amazing Spider-Man 2, wasn't it? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. The difference between Gwen and um, Mary Jane, your, your general standard, yeah, heroine, Mary Jane specifically, that she went in there in full knowledge and with full determination that regardless of what happened, she was going to do whatever she could to help. And I mean, I have to say, full disclosure, I love Trish. She's awesome. She's, she's my favorite potentially character. Oh, she's my favorite. Yeah, fantastic. I adore her. She's I think wonderful. she's amazing. And and the when I was looking at kind of the the different aspects of the psyche um, element, uh, Trish came through very strongly for me as the persona, which is um, kind of the mask of the psyche. It's the face that you put out to the world. It's not necessarily not you. But it's just the version of you that you feel comfortable interacting with the outside world. And the fact that she is a public person, the fact that, um, you know, everybody more or less knows who she is, albeit that a lot of them remember um, a different aspect of who she was. Um, And that's something that she doesn't um, she doesn't flee from. She's kind of almost embraced it a bit, but she's tweaked it slightly so that she can do it on her own terms. She changes her name. She loses the wig. She specifically she goes from a very visual medium where she's seen as this beatific child to being a, a woman who's using her brain and her voice in a non-visual context. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I think one of my favourite moments that really sort of warmed me up to the character of Trish is when she's on the radio and she has her moment of um in spite of her better judgment being very very angry and aggressive about Kilgrave and being like no Mm. this is a person who exists and he is disgusting and despicable and he is the worst kind of like subhuman rubbish whatever you want to call him and like the fact that she's looking at Jessica and she knows like I know that this isn't smart but right now screw it this is what I'm doing like this needs to be said and i'm like i have a lot of respect for you trish i like you around <laughs> so about the time around about the time that i thought this is an absolutely fantastic character i c- i cannot wait to see where this goes she got attacked by will or the unnamed policeman at the time i have never gone Gah! 
at a um, a sudden relief of a, a person turning up to break up a fight uh, yeah. with that level of relief. Yeah. I, I hadn't realized how tense I'd gotten until I went, oh, God. <laughs> um, what I love about Trish is how she, this is a woman who represents, I think, where Jessica would someday want to be. And that's, so your mm-hmm. comment, Sharon, about her being the persona is, I think, very accurate. Yeah. Trish has dealt with her abusive mother. She can communicate with that person, but she is also very comfortable saying, mm-hmm. I would like you to leave now. And not just to her mother, but to Will. She can yeah. say that. And she, she, there is never any hesitation or weakness in her saying, this is what I want and this is what I do not want. And this is what I'm willing to do and this is what I am not willing to do. Yeah. Trish is completely comfortable within her boundaries. She's willing to explore them, but she knows exactly where they are and has no problem saying so. Yeah. For for me, as someone who like very, I very much um, like not in direct situations, but in terms of overall themes of like issues with parents and relation and like emotionally unhealthy relationships with parents. I really, 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 saw something special in Trisha's portrayal in that scene. And it's the one you were talking about where she invites her mother and she uh, into her home. She is willing to have a conversation. She accepts her mother's help when it is offered. And when she sees this relationship pushing back into unhealthy, dangerous directions, she doesn't like pull back and be like, no, I have to undo the good you did. And before getting rid of you, it's just, okay, I appreciate that you helped but I can see unhealthy things in our dynamic starting up again. You need to leave. I I'm able to notice that straight away and cut that off before it becomes a problem. Like she's very strong and very aware of her own. Like she doesn't cut her mother out entirely is fantastic. The fact that she's willing to give her mother a chance and to not pretend the past didn't happen, but to put it to one side and say, okay, let's give you a chance to not make that same mistake again. But if you make it, you're straight out that door the second you make that mistake. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was really well handled. And I certainly looked at that. And when you talk about that as the persona, I'm like, yep, I can certainly see the aspirational qualities of that as an, as a response to an unhealthy relationship with someone who has to stay in your life. And, and that relationship, um, really reinforces um, a central theme of the show, in that a lot of the of the abuse that we see in the show from from the <laughs> abuser characters, uh, it all comes from a place of love, um, which it sounds really strange to say, but every abuser in this in the series is convinced that they are doing whatever they're doing in the best interests of the person they're abusing. And they do genuinely love these people. Like, Trisha's mum, she's horrible. She is a horrible, manipulative person. But there was never at any point where I doubted that this person actually loved her daughter. She does love her daughter. She just has does not know the proper way of expressing those uh, those emotions and the responses to like the, the there is never a negative response to a character saying no this situation is becoming unhealthy you need to go now like that is never questioned at no point does anyone say well why did you get rid of your mother all she said was blank it's it's understood that those small moments that might seem insignificant 
in just their own like little mm-hmm. bubble of context that they're in. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't know what larger context has gone on in the past to lead to that being a sign of an unhealthy situation that the person needs to get out of. Yeah. And, and I think, with yeah. Trish, oh, sorry, go on. No, that's okay, go on. I was going to say, with Trish, that's also true of her relationship with Simpson, which I find fascinating. Yeah. That first mm-hmm. morning after conversation when Jessica shows up and he wants to jump in and talk about all of his special force training, I mean, I couldn't help but look at that and go, mansplainer to the rescue. <laughs> and Trish just turns to him and stops him cold. And you see it. The camera does not yeah. move. As you see on his face as he fights down the urge to push back. Mm-hmm. And then he just says, no, you're right. This is not my fight. That is such brave, I mean, camera work, if nothing else, to refuse to allow that moment to be lost. Mm. The fact that this is very much her situation and she's in control of it and she's not going to allow anyone else Mm. to take it over. Yeah, it's that trust that um, when Trish says, like, this is my thing to deal with and doesn't give an explanation, it's that trust from the characters around her that it's like, okay, we trust that you know what you're on about here and that you know what's best for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that, that him. I, sorry. That's okay. That I find really fascinating that the, um, what I was saying about the whole self-doubt thing, the characters doubt themselves. The camera, the show, the script never doubts them for a second. I know. Yeah. And the characters around them never, never doubt them either. Mm. The, yeah. the character can doubt themselves, but no one around them doubts them. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, Trish is amazing, and I love Trish. <laughs> yes, yes. Same. Much, much more. Yes. Yeah. Want to see... I I did do a little bit... I, I Testament to how much I loved this show, I stayed off Wikipedia, I stayed away from Twitter, away from, from anybody on Facebook talking about it. I didn't want anything spoiling. But after it had finished, I went and did a little bit of digging about um, sort of Trish's backstory, which is, is kind of from much earlier in the comics i understand mm-hmm. but i was kind of going oh yeah i want to see that yeah. <laughs> you see i especially love the hellcat character because like i said um she winds up becoming the private investigator for jennifer for she hulk in a later my very favorite series of comics mm-hmm. so i'm really i can see her evolving into that character getting a taste for the, the investigative side of things, especially yeah. with the fantastically dangling plot thread that is IGH yeah. moving forward. I can see them moving towards a situation where those other characters may come to play. There is also one little, um, very little moment that references the comics with Trish and Jessica that I think is wonderful, which is where she's suggesting um, outfits and names for Jessica oh, Jones. Yes. Oh, and she suggests oh. Jewel, where I'm just like, ah, you did the thing. And nice. Jessica <laughs> hates the idea. But That's a I stripper's that, name. Oh. Yeah, but I love that it's I love that it's Trish that suggests it. Exactly. Mm. Like she, because she's, of course. she's member number one in Jessica Jones fan club. She's like, right, I'm gonna make you a costume. You need a costume if you're a superhero. Let's do this. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah. Um, but I also like the fact that all of that enthusing about um about who Jessica is and the powers that she has, deep down, is because Trish really wants those powers for herself. Yeah. Well, it's because those powers would have been really helpful in her own situation with her mother. Mm, I think yeah. there is there is certainly an amount of 
the ability to leap out of situations or push back from situations would have been really useful to her at a time. I find that interesting because Mm -hmm. especially when they start to explore Jessica and Trisha's relationship as sisters and that sisterly relationship becomes more the focus of, Mm -hmm. of their interaction. Trish spends a lot of time in, in the phase where she's being abused by her mother saying, no, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Don't use those powers. So I can't help but wonder if that is a, it's Trisha's own experience of being, if I take the abuse from my mother, then no one else has to deal with it. Mm. Like Jessica does with Kilgrave. Yes. And I think also there's an amount of, again, going onto the themes of control, which we'll obviously get to with Kilgrave. There is a certain amount there of, um, I don't want someone to save me from this situation. I need to be the one to get myself through it. Mm. And, not wanting someone else to swoop in and save save her from the problem, she wants to know that she is strong enough to get through it herself. And that that ties into one of the moments I found most interesting, which is the fight with Simpson in Jessica's apartment. Mm. And it's it speaks yet again to the incredible balance in the script, where she shows Simpson that she's stolen his reds, and he is desperate for her to not take one. Oh, I and, I and, love that relationship dynamic so much. And his is completely genuine. And the look on her face as she swallows the pill and goes, worth it. And just counts <gasps> oh. down that corridor is incredible. There's an argument that that's maybe the only moment of catharsis any of these characters get. Yeah. It is that one moment where she's like, no, this is the moment where I will take on that strength and I will be the one to stop this. And it's going to feel good. And it might be the last thing I do, but I'm going to feel bloody good doing it. Exactly. But you notice that that feeling good is very short lived. Yes, it is. Instant that it goes away. Yeah. And the second that the consequences are coming in, she no longer feels like, oh, yeah, I made the right choice. It's now like, oh, what's happening? Ah, no. Exactly. It's yes, a literal it's, high followed by the dire yeah. consequences. Exactly. It is regretted the second she does it, and she has her catharsis, but it's very quickly pulled away. Yeah. It is not, as she says, worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk Zebediah Kilgrave? Oh, yeah. This Let's. is going to be a fun one. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be a long one. Uh, um, l- let me put my cards on the table straight away. I, I think... Kilgrave is, uh, for me personally, by some distance, the strongest antagonist that Marvel have ever produced. Yes, um, agree more for a number of reasons. Um, mainly because he isn't trying to take over the world. He isn't trying to gather these jewels together to uh, please uh, a manifestation of death. Or, well, we don't know or, if Thanos might impress us in that regard. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but just his motivations are pretty much just greed and entitlement. And Anger. given given um, some experiences that a lot of um, game developers and um, and uh, games journalists have had to go through in the last couple of years, mm. uh, this hit really close to home because in a lot of ways, um, Kilgrave is a gamer cater. Oh my uh, goodness! In, in there, his... there is a Vice article, I think it is, that is um, is entirely about is Kilgrave an analog for Gamergate, and it's quite there's a lot of interesting parallels to be drawn particularly in terms of um i didn't i didn't hurt you i just encouraged an environment where other people did it wasn't me 
yeah. a lot of that stuff took is, place yeah. i was present yeah. No. <laughs> My mind control as a, a metaphor for the control that abusers have over their victims was a stroke of genius. Yes. Um, it, it just it's it's obviously an exaggeration of what actually goes on, but it's so it's such an effective way of cr- trying to convey the grip that these mm-hmm. types of people have over their victims. To you know, I, I've I've thankfully have have never been in an abusive relationship of that kind, but the way they use the mind control to kind of demonstrate the danger of these kind of people it's impossible not to sympathize and empathize even if you're not you know somebody who hasn't had experience of that to just have a, an instant understanding of like oh okay i i really get it now i like i i i feel like i i'm not saying i've i've you know don't understand but there sometimes art can you know reframe things and kind of contextualize things in a way where you think about something differently and i i feel like kilgrave and and the depiction of this character throughout the series really put some pieces together into my mind in order to better understand my friends and 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 colleagues experiences with these kinds of people I, I think I think what makes Kilgrave so terrifying to me as someone who's been through these some of these kind of abusive relationships is that his representation and the terror he represents is presented in two forms. Initially, you start off with the mind control being what makes him scary. He's initially portrayed as someone who um, has this terrifying, slightly exaggerated level of um, horrific control over anyone he meets and I think for me the second thing is what makes him more terrifying and that's when he stops using the powers mm-hmm. yes. when he starts it's when he starts controlling people without using mind control and when it's just the threat of someone who has been abusive to you in the past using whatever abilities it is they have to abuse you again in the future that present threat allows them to continue controlling you long past the point where mind control powers are no longer being used the the creepiest Mm. scene by some distance for me well not scene but series of moments was when kilgrave requested that um jessica send him pictures of her at 10 o'clock every single day that's the episode that caused me not to sleep yeah yeah Yeah, and it's i'm not mind controlling you but i'm also giving you no choice but to do what i'm saying yeah, yeah. yeah I, I can't I can't help but feel that Melissa read Fifty Shades of Grey and and, yep. and yes, realized what we that, said. and realized that Mr. Grey wait a minute, this character's an antagonist, not a yeah. idealized mm. figure. This guy is a villain. Why why has this yeah. writer Right, okay, I'm writing well, the script for Jessica that, that, had that, the no. miserable yeah. misfortune to actually opt in to watching that last oh, week. And yeah. he was uh, Christian Grey is more unpleasant than Zebediah Kilgrave. <laughs> All of you women out there who get your jollies reading Fifty Shades of Grey, stop. There are so much better out there. But you're yeah. not listening to this show anyway, are you? <laughs> I, I think that photo scene is like, it's one of two points that like were the two points where I felt very unsettled for very different reasons. And it's episode one's very over-the-top moment of um, the young woman in the bed 
who she won't leave the bed and it's that moment of you, mm. he told you he told you not to move didn't he yeah. and you counteract that That's with hope. the opposite yeah hope um and you counteract that with the moment of i'm not controlling your mind but you're going to send me pictures of you smiling every day at 10 a.m because otherwise i'm going to do something you won't like and it's those two very different kinds of control where it starts off with just this very exaggerated like this person has no choice but to not uh, to to do what this person's making them do, and then this very different style of, oh, you take away the mind power, control powers. This person who is a victim of abuse still has no choice but to do what he's making them do. One of the most. And, oh, sorry. Yeah, you go. It's internal. It's it's like the narrative itself is internalizing the abuse. Yeah. You start mm. with having this very external experience of a supernatural force causing these horrible events. But as the episodes progress, you as the viewer are starting to feel and have be you know, being given yeah. that emotional experience of the abuse being self-controlling and, and I think, externally. And I think that's what makes this such a good um, representation of being a victim of abuse for people who haven't gone through it in that it gives you that very over-the-top initial depiction that is very easy to imagine from an outside perspective because of this external force. And then as the series goes on, it very slowly internalizes that to the point where it's like, oh, those things I was feeling in episode one toward Hope are the things that I should be feeling now towards Jessica in episode six or seven, exactly. regardless of the fact that these mind control powers aren't being yeah. used. On top of all that, there are there are kind of two very specific metafictional filters to Kilgrave, which only make him more unsettling. And the first one is the casting of David Tennant. Mm, mm. Because Tennant very, very clearly takes almost all the mannerisms and speech patterns of the Tenth Doctor and curdles them. So constantly you're going, I'm familiar with this character. Mm. He's basically lovely, and he's not. And it constantly rattles you, and it constantly puts you on edge. And it's someone who should feel safe. Yes, that's mm. exactly the way. To, that, that, that is the, the, the perfect way to describe it. And that in turn feeds back into the abuse narrative. You should feel safe with this person, and you don't. Yeah. Mm. So it causes well, the doubt and the yeah. cycle, yeah. It's yeah. like when if, Robin if Williams sh- d- does the, uh, the creepy thing in um, uh, One Hour Photo oh, and yep. uh, in, Insomnia, because you, you're thinking, no, this is Patch Adams. This is, um, uh, you know... Mrs. Mrs. Doubtfire. Stay good, Jumanji. Stay good. (laughs) But no, yeah, it's uh, obviously uh, Tennant um, was was even more chilling even than that. Yeah, and it plays really nicely again, also into the fact that like if anyone saw that person out of context of Jessica Jones, they'd be like, "What is there to be scared of? It's just the Doctor. It's yeah, he's he's fine." And it's this: Mm. anyone who's looking in from the outside is going to see someone who is harmless and who is not a problem. Unless you're inside this situation. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Somebody who's tall, well-dressed, obviously has money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And And charming. Well-spoken, charming, Mm yeah. And you have to be inside this situation to understand how terrifying he is. And that's what was so brilliant about this. This is the way that he chooses to exert his control over her from a distance. Every day at 10 o'clock, you will send me a selfie of you. Now, a lot of people would look at that externally and go, well, what's so terrifying about that? It's just a picture. It's not as if he's asking for nudes or anything like that. It's just a picture of you, which anybody can see you as they're walking down the street. But the point is that that means every day, 
every damn day at 10 o'clock, she has to think of him. She has to remember yes. everything yep. and, he's ever done. And she her. has to remember that she is powerless to get out of that particular situation yeah. at that time. It's I have no choice but to do what he's making me do. And he Absolutely. is controlling yeah. me and right now. And that, that is is yeah. the, the key element of so many abusive relationships that people don't get. It's not the things, it's the context. Mm. It's the way it's making you feel. And it's the fact that the person who's doing it on some level, even if they refuse to acknowledge it to themselves, they know how it's making you feel and they're still doing it. Mm. The most extreme manifestation of that is when uh, Ruben is killed, Jessica's reaction is to try to get herself locked up in a uh, uh, supermax prison. Yep. Her harebrained scheme is, he'll come for me. She doesn't want to lay down in front of her the notion that what if he just goes... Oh, no, she's in Supermax prison. I'm not going in there. In which case, she's going to spend the rest of her life in hell, a self-imposed hell she didn't have to be in, thinking about him all the time, ceding control in an effort to take control of the situation. Yeah, and like there are so many ways he could still take control, because even if he does come for her, we've seen in the past that he's manipulated security guards to get rid of security footage. He's done, like, he's done mass-scale manipulation to get her out of places while still leaving no trace. Like I, she's like, no, 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 this will be the one where I'll catch him. This will be the one where he'll leave some evidence. And like, there's no reason to believe that other than that. She's so desperate yet to, to take that control back for catharsis. Exactly. Mm. It's an extreme shock reaction to the fact that she wakes, well, that that it's in her bed and it's a Mm. person she knows and they're dead. And it's a direct result of her being part of this chain. And it's a it's punishment as well. She's uh, in the same way as she um, uh, pushes Trish away in the in the middle section. She's uh, trying to separate herself from the rest of the world uh, to and to go to a place where the only people that could be possibly killed are um, other prisoners and guards who have already let themselves in for this. It's uh, she's kind of trying to drag him down to hell. There, there is one thing that the show at no point does, and I'm, I can't articulate how grateful I am for it. Um, it's never camp. Mm. Kilgrave is never cheesy. He's never a Batman villain. And this is a man who wanders New York in a purple suit. <laughs> he is always a heartbeat mm. away from being the 1960s Batman TV show Joker. Mm. And yeah. they never, ever do that. And that folds onto the tension again because you're going, no, it's okay. It's a superhero show. They'll overreach in a little bit. And it never does. Mm. He's always plausible and charming and he always resets and he always refuses to let you forget what he really is. Another great thing about the depiction of Kilgrave is I feel with mind control, that's an ability where you can... You can imagine the slippery slope of corruption that mm. having ability, an ability like that would have on a person who obtained it. And you almost don't need the kind of abusive backstory with his parents because I, I can just imagine a situation like the situation the show shows you where the neighbor comes over and joins him and Jessica and... Kilgrave forces her to tell the truth 
And how many situations have we all been in where we've confronted someone and you just, oh, we just, I know what you actually, mm. you're actually doing here. I know what you're actually thinking. Why don't you just actually say it out loud and, and let us all know? And having that ability to, you know, force that information out mm. of somebody, you can see the appeal. It's not right but you can see the appeal of that yeah. ability. And then slowly you start justifying other things. Well, I, I, I can't afford that candy bar, but it's not going to hurt anyone if I just take this. Nobody knows. Oh, I, I haven't got enough money to pay for this meal. I'll just say it's worth £40 instead of 50 and that's not going to hurt anyone. And you keep breaking these moral rules, and it keeps mm. breaking until you have none left because you've justified all of them in this... This weird moral reconstruction that you've created to to accommodate this ability that gives you so much power over uh, other people. I gotta say, at no point does does he admit to what he's done. There's one line yeah. in one of the house episodes where he goes, "Yes, well, I mean, the people I affected, and that quarter second between the people I and affected." Betrays That's all him you ever get because you can yeah. see him. Going, yeah, I've caused deaths. I can't face that. Let's say this instead. The the slippery slope of Kilgrave's self-justification, I think, is really interesting in the sort of uh, very fine line that Jessica Jones walks with it, where a lot of shows like this would try and humanize their villain by saying, here is the justification for why they are the way they are. And what we get here is never the show trying to tell you this justifies the way he is. We get Kilgrave saying this justifies the way I am. Like his self-explanation is, look, I grew up having to be careful about every word I said. I never knew whether people were doing things because they wanted to or because I wanted to. And we hear his attempt at self-justification, but we also get that sort of juxtaposed with his parents who are like, no, right from day one, you knew you were being controlling and you would, you did this from the beginning. It wasn't a slippery slope. It was something that you were very aware of. And the, the show never takes a stance on that. The show never feels like it's... Exactly. It, the show never feels like it's saying, poor Kilgrave, he went through this, isn't it bad that he has to live through this power? What we get is Kilgrave explaining downsides to his power that we can empathise with and we can say, I can understand how if you had this power, that would be a concern for some people... We don't know if it's a genuine concern or just a self-justification for Kilgrave. Yeah. And yeah. what we also see is Kilgrave's actions, which very rarely line up with his self-justification. Mm. And it's like the things you're saying, yes, they make sense, but that doesn't mean mm. we have to believe that they are like that you yeah. that they are things that you actually believe. Absolutely. He is a character that you understand why he is the way he is, but the show never paints him as anything other than morally repugnant. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not, he's not like Loki, where there's a, a level of relatability to the way he is. Yeah. Um, it, the show paints him as this is an awful human being. In now, these people exist and that you need to understand why they exist and what goes on inside their head but that doesn't justify what they're doing they're still repugnant it's, they're still awful it's, people it's the understanding that like it's a real world thing that pe that various situations can bring up in people where yeah. people realize they have a justification for a past action 
then knowingly use it to justify further actions going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like it's it's the situation that I don't doubt that there was a very real issue with him as a child where he struggled to know what are th- people doing be- uh, what things are people doing because they want to do them and what things are people doing because I told them. I don't doubt that as a child that would have been a very real conflict for him. However, when he then layers that into like future adult situations, such as, well, how did I know that you didn't want to have sex with me? And that, like, how did I know that that was because I told you to and not because you wanted to? Well, because you are a serial misuser of this terrifying power you have. And, you know, if you told someone to do it, then you can't infer consent from that. And you should probably understand that by this point. Mm, but yeah. a lot it's, of. Yeah. It's basically just. I can understand how you'd feel that way as a child, but as an adult, you must understand the distinction of, I told someone to do that. I can't guarantee that they didn't do it. Like They probably did it because I told them. Can't infer consent from that. I think what's really interesting about them bringing in Kilgrave's parents later on and the knowledge that you get about it, Mm-hmm. One of the very first impressions I had of Kilgrave when we actually start to see him on screen and he's interacting is Arrested Development. This is a 10-year-old in a man's body. Mm-hmm. Emotionally, yeah. psychologically, yeah. the way he reacts and interacts and manipulates and considers yeah. people is childlike. Mm-hmm. And so a child when they, who is stronger than he should be. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when they bring in... Kind of, you learn more about his backstory and the situation with the parents. I think the show gives you the option of having sympathetic feelings for him because it's easy to you can draw the conclusion that this is someone who has been emotionally stunted in their development as a result of this trauma. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, then it goes on and with Kilgreaves actions, it continues to show you that these are conscious ongoing choices. Yes. Mm. That regardless of what he went through in the past, he is still making choices to manipulate people around him, to use people who care about him to his advantage. He's very aware of what he's doing. Yeah. And I think for me, particular, I mean, particularly with this character, but I would say in, in other situations where there have been um, characters or, or people who have been subject to abuse or traumatic situations as children and the result of that is that they grow up to become abusers themselves because i mean that's one of the almost inevitable cycles that Mm. if you are an abuser chances are you were abused and Mm. if you are abused on some level you have the potential to go on to visit that abuse further down the line well it's it's the the dual reactions of you either go on to abuse yourself or you end up going on to try and prevent abuse in others like you go one of two directions with it yeah yeah but i I think the the Mm. essence of that for me was it's it's quite possible to feel compassion for the child that he was Mm. and while again you know that his version of events his parents version of events the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle Mm -hmm. um ultimately how he interpreted as a child what was being done to him was probably yeah terrifying and feeling like he was being victimized and manhandled and 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 tormented because you can say to a child this is for your own good because you're ill you you can't a child doesn't grasp that on the level that they really need to to be able to Mm. accept all the horrible things that are happening to them in the name of making them better Mm. Um, but there's a difference between feeling the compassion for that child and recognizing that as an adult 
he now has the choice to stop doing those things and most importantly mm. to accept that he has done those things to accept responsibility for the things that he does and i think ultimately that's the thing that makes him morally repugnant mm. repugnant it's not that he does those things it's that he refuses steadfastly to ever accept any responsibility for there, them there is one thing that i think is really interesting on this discussion that i've that i'm curious to hear what you all think because i've not heard enough people talking about this um, we talked a little bit about the fact that Jessica as a character when she's with Kilgrave has her moment of, at least it's initially presented as, if I stay with him, I can fix him. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that's ultimately not what she does. She sort of uses that as her opportunity to capture him. But I think it's really interesting looking at the portrayal of Kilgrave during the time where in an attempt to curry um, Jessica's favour, he goes with her to save a family. And this situation of, right, if what you want is to be with me, then we are going to channel you into doing something good. We are going to try and ex- like show you good ways of using this ability and ways of like doing the right thing. And an attempt at taking this character and being like, hey, your excuse is that you don't know better fine, come with me, I'll teach you better. And this, whether it's feigned or not on Kilgrave's part, you've got this moment of, I can maybe do something better with my life that is still fulfilling to me than what I've been doing. And then as he has his moment of trust, bam, that's gone and he's locked up again. And I think what's kind of interesting about that is the potential there to momentarily, like, again, make you feel some sympathy for this character, that whether you believe or not that he is capable of change, it is presenting him in a situation where he clearly is trusting Jessica, where he is clearly like putting some faith in her not to betray him, and that she takes advantage of that situation. And the fact that that is presented on both sides, it's it's presented primarily as a victory for Jessica, as like, you found a weakness, you found an opening, you managed to get him locked up. But that it's also, in some ways, portrayed as this moment of betrayal of a character who's morally repugnant and who we've spent half the series up to that point detested by. I think it's a weird, interesting juxtaposition of emotions there i think it's it's one of the things that that emphasizes his character as being um, almost entirely sociopathic and yes, the fact that definitely. he he acts um he he does things and he can choose those things at random seemingly and there is no uh, mm. particular moral code be that a, a what we would consider to be a positive moral code or a negative moral code mm. that drives him in any particular direction he does whatever seems the most beneficial or fleetingly appealing to thing to him in any mm. given moment and again that's one of the things that makes him so terrifying because we fear as humans nothing so much as the unpredictable yeah. If somebody has a bad moral code, a negative moral code, at least you can rely on them yeah. to be driven by that moral code and to do things yeah. that are consistent with that moral code. If this person will do whatever it pops into their head to do at any given moment and there is nothing dictating what that thing is, how in the name of God are you supposed to know how to deal with them? Yeah. It's also very interesting to me that after that experience, Kilgrave uses every opportunity to bring it up. 
he dines mm. out on the fact that he you know he was a hero once he says it to his parents he says it yes. to Jessica he uses it to manipulate Hogarth well, yeah it's mm. such an easy thing to flip because it's that exactly. moment of she has manipulated him when he was trying to or at least on paper he did something good and she manipulated him in order to get what she wanted. So he feels and, morally justified, so why yeah. wouldn't he tout it? And on paper, he can totally justify that. And uh, it Can I ask a can I ask a question maybe on this whole side line? I don't understand why he went Hogar I'm um, sorry, Kilgrave went to the effort of winning the poker game, paying money for the house. Oh, mm. And then letting the family I, go. I don't I, understand I, that. I I do, I think I have got an explanation for that. Um, it's it's because of the limitation of his power, because it only lasts like ten or twelve hours, yeah. and the complications involved in kind of buying and selling a house. If any person along that chain suddenly gets you know becomes lucid and goes, oh wait a minute, suddenly he has to explain why he's yeah. got this house and all of that. With and by doing it legitimately, it's nice and clean, and he has ownership, and he doesn't have to deal with anyone else. I, I think that's another example of really good, uh, a really good example of manipulation on his part, where consent matters to him. When consent matters to him, he will pay attention to it. Like it is important to him in this situation yeah. that the person selling the house consents so that 12 hours later they don't come back and contest the sale. Well, and he when wants can, privacy for what yes. he wants to set up with and, Jessica. Yeah, and he's like, okay, it is important that this person willingly leaves and is not going to come back, and as such, yeah. consent is important right now. That yeah. is the only time we ever see him pay attention to consent is when it's about long-term benefit for him. What, to a degree as well, sorry. Uh, go go on, Sharon. I think your point's more relevant. To a degree as well, I think he also wants to be able to show that off to Jessica. Absolutely. To be yeah. able to mm. say to her, look what I did. I bought you a house. Not just that, yeah. I bought your house. And I bought it for you. But it, there's another terrifying level of control with what he does. And it links to um, the little chant that she does to try and bring herself back to mm. a, a focused mm. position yeah the, the reciting of the street names of where you lived as a child and she explains yeah. it to hope and she gets Joe, her, hope to do it um to try and focus her and and the way i interpret that because they never explain it completely which i thought was beautiful mm. but the way i interpreted it was listing those street names is focusing you on a point in your life before the abuse happened it's taking yeah. you back to a point where you were and safe where all of this hadn't happened and by buying that house mm. and putting himself yeah. in that context Absolutely. he is Takes even that taking that yeah. away from he is, her. he is taking away her safe her, her place of safety in her mind i yeah. don't even think he was trying to be that malicious in doing that though he doesn't uh, yeah he doesn't yeah. he doesn't have that kind of I'm going to hurt you, kind of thing. Yeah, he's it's, not a real no, I think <laughs> it's it's not that I'm gonna hurt you, it's I'm gonna control you. Yeah, it's it, it and it's refreshing because his character could have gone so wrong, because they could have gone down the sadism route. And they could have gone for more and more exotic things. But the, when he says, uh, if we're not back within two hours, 
take the skin off each other's faces. He's not saying that because he's like, I don't want you to be in pain. He's just saying that to say to Jessica, dire things will happen if you yeah. don't make uh, make us come back. There will uh, there will be time. consequences. Like it doesn't matter what he threatens. There, it's just something to be like. I can. St- I still have control. Yeah. You still have to do what you've said. And I am so bored of sadism. Anyone who listens to this show will know this by now. Yeah. That uh, it's it's an overused currency. So seeing the idea of, um, the, the, I, I completely get what you mean about like him. I completely get Josh why he is your like way up in front um, uh, best Marvel antagonist. He's probably only just behind Loki for me, oh. and that's only because he's. Tom Hiddleston is so incredibly cinematic in, in how he, he plays that guy. And also because I root for Loki. I don't really root for Zebediah. There were moments yeah. when I was rooting for him, but I kind of want Loki to succeed in some capacity. With Zebediah, it's good that he's dead. That, yeah. it, that once he got like amplified... I was thinking, this is just going to escalate. He will just keep uh, pushing and pushing on this until he I does something atrocious. I want to go on the escalation tangent when we get him up. Yeah, no, go for it, yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. done, go for it. No, Laura, you had a point, go ahead. Oh, sorry, oh, Laura, I, did I... That's all right. I'm so sorry. All, all, all I was going to say was, um, I definitely agree on Josh's side of that. For me, he is far and away the most terrifying villain Marvel has done and the best villain they've done, just in terms of the fact that he has the most grounded, relatable threat. And yeah. for me, that is what makes him so fantastic, is yeah. his threat is so real and understandable, and there is such a value to sharing the experience of that threat. I'm not going to dispute terrifying. He's way more terrifying than Loki. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely the most... I find him the most terrifying psychologically. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. terms of... I can't say he's my favorite villain, though, because I'm inordinately fond of Fisk. <laughs> Fisk is fantastic as well. Like, I, I I, think my big point about, like, earlier the, the TV shows being better than the movies in the MCU at the moment, it's largely down to the villains. I think yeah, the, the, the Netflix shows have done such a better job with their villains overall yeah. than the movies. It, it's because, I mean, with TV, it's a medium that allows characters to breathe in a way that movies can't. And oh. with with a film series, you can allow pra- protagonists to breathe because you're going to have several movies with these guys. But often villains are kind of a one and done affair yeah, with these with this genre. And what, what I what I will say to counter that slightly very quickly yeah. is that one episode of Jessica Jones had me more convinced that this was a solid villain yeah. than yeah. most of the Marvel movies do in a considerably longer running time. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So I will say like it's not necessarily the series length. The that first episode really well encapsulated him as a terrifying villain. I I, ab- I absolutely agree. I mean the, the writing is there right from the very beginning. Yeah. I I just mean more that um characters like this uh, characters who require um the audience to spend a lot more time with because they're unpleasant and you don't really want to like or relate to them or understand them you need to just keep exposing your audience to them and uh, you know glean information almost through osmosis and and one thing i i just want to briefly mention this show does such a good job of expressing things without awkward uh exposition dialogue now i know um 
I know most of the people on this panel uh, like Daredevil, the TV show, uh, but I I wasn't a fan of some of the dialogue choices in that show because it did feel like some of the characters were going right. Audience, now I'm going to explain. <laughs> yeah, blah 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 As- blah 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 blah. But in this, uh, it does such a good job of lawyers, I mean- man. We're wordy. <laughs> <laughs> as, as great as Fisk was as a villain, there was some considerable pacing and conversational issues with Daredevil's yeah, whole yeah. series. But Fisk was a fantastic villain. Where, whereas, whereas uh, as Sharon's already alluded to, um, they express uh, a lot of things just through visuals and just through context. Um, the moment where uh, where Kilgrave purchases purchases that house, they don't, you know do this huge like oh i have he has purchased the house that jessica jones lived it's almost like he's destroyed his her childhood they never draw attention to that they never you know explicitly point to that but it you draw that conclusion organically um and they, they do draw that all back and just show you that street sign and yeah. that's all yeah. you need mm. Yeah, absolutely. And they do that a lot in the first episode as well. Uh, There is a scene where um, Jessica does explicitly explain why she's doing uh, the, you know, reciting her street and and, and what have you uh, to to Trish. But it's in a context that makes sense. And up until then, it's just... Uh, she just does it. She doesn't explain it to the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, you just naturally, organically figure it out. And yeah. the the way they do that with Kilgrave as well, just as a character, a lot of the things he does uh, and a lot of the... Uh, the uh the aftermath of his actions and stuff like that it is all visual and all in you know the way people talk about him and all of that stuff and it's really impressive because so many shows just don't trust their audience's intelligence mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. feel like i'm going to explain exactly what thematically yeah. is going on here and explain exactly what the intentions of everyone involved now you don't need to do that just frame things in a certain way give us a specific context mm-hmm. and all the way through the show it does that magnificently and we kind of alluded to this right at the beginning, but in terms of that whole idea of giving the audience credit for understanding what's going on, I think yeah. the big thing structurally that this show does right from the beginning is it doesn't give you a superhero origin story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't yeah. give you an origin story for the hero or their villain or what their conflict is. It throws you right into the middle of this is a superhero. They have a primary antagonist. Um, you will discover who that antagonist is and what powers this person has and who this person is organically through the show. We don't need a season to reach them being a superhero. It just throws you in and expects you to pick it up as you go. Which is so refreshing for this genre because as much as I, uh, there are plenty of superhero origin stories that I really like, I'm kind of getting a bit tired of the template and really want to, you know, jump straight into the meat of good storytelling uh, where these characters really get to grow. And I appreciated that Jessica Jones was like, yeah, these people have powers. Let's just go. It's because there's such slight exaggerations of uh, their personality traits in that Jessica is destructive and Luke is uh, very, what would be the term? Uh, Very emotionally and physically walled off. Yeah, walled (laughs) off. And that Zebediah, without his incredible power, would still be incredibly persuasive. They're just little tweaks 
that mm-hmm. rather than rather than going, look, get this. This person can leap tall buildings in a single bound. That it's it's just a case of okay, right? This story with no superpowers at all could play out exactly the same if you mm. just take it that Zebediah is a sociopath who is very good at persuading people and to do things. It's why his interaction with Hogarth fascinates me. Yeah. Because you don't see any evidence that he's used his abilities on it. And to a degree, it's, it's, it felt like... Um, Daredevil was the same in that um, the only actual powers being used are, are Matt's, you know, supernaturally attuned senses. But ultimately, they were kind of playing that in a kind of well, he could just have been, you know, really particularly sensitive of a person. To Daredevil, though, it felt like it was working to its detriment. Like they were taking away anything remarkable about Matt and focusing mostly on how well he could punch men. Mm-hmm. And the amount of fighting began to numb. It, it was incredible fighting. Some of the best on TV, but the amount that there was. And I was so refreshed that in Jessica Jones, there's like f- five fights. But that's the point of Daredevil, is Matt becomes numb. Mm. He becomes completely numbed by his guilt and by his actions. And much like Jessica Jones, Daredevil has to do that to its own audience yeah. it has to numb Deaden you with it, beauty yeah. and the horror and the pain of what the life matt is experiencing becomes but my reaction to that is like it, it was also doing the same with um uh wilson and, and saying look he's he is a monster but he sees himself as righteous i i, I just recoiled from that and you know not even in the end just almost immediately it was like oh, you're just a monster I, I cannot relate to this on any level this see, I monstrous see it as the complete, behavior. I see it as the complete opposite. I think he thinks himself as righteous, but realizes he's a monster. Fisk fascinates me, yeah. just as a character. He's yeah, Fisk is fascinating. I also think that like there is an interesting thing very quickly to note. Both of the current uh, Marvel Netflix series we have, um, the way that they're paced, episode eight is the episode where you find out the villain's backstory. Mm. Oh, that, um, oh, I hadn't realized that. Yeah, I believe it's episode eight in both of those series. So I'm very curious to see if that continues. Just is that the pa- the pacing milestone they've hit where it's like episode eight, you now need a backstory. On that- oh, my, but just the creative freedom that recording, uh, that, that filming a season at a time and releasing a season at a time does. <laughs> it just, it completely changes the dynamic with your audience Mm. because now you know your audience has the opportunity to pick up all those tiny threads that you spend all that time putting in as a producer as a director because they are allowed to binge watch it and all of the conversation comes from that narrative through play it's It's completely different from the episodic dc flash and arrow sorts of things where it is literally situation slash fight of the week Mm. yeah what's also really nice for the pacing is that they don't stick very closely to episode lengths Mm -hmm. they aim at about 45 minutes but there is almost a 10 minute window either side that they can extend or decrease an episode length which means they're not obligated to fill space 
yeah, and if they have more short. stuff they want to fit in, they don't have to cut it short, and that does wonders for pacing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like this is this should be a new standard for how TV works. It's because... more like reading a great yeah. book straight away mm. if you choose to. Although a lot of people that uh, I spoke to uh, have said, look, I, I can watch one or two of these episodes at a time, but they are very very dark. It was yeah, the other way around for me and Sharon. Like we we wanted to just keep watching and watching and watching, and when we yeah. went away and came back just a day later, it took a while to re-engage. There were certain choke points with for, with this series for me where I had to have my moments of stopping. Yeah, absolutely. That were very difficult, the but equally there bit. were moments that I yeah. There were, there were e- yeah. Oh God, yeah. Uh, there were equally moments where I couldn't turn away, and I was glad to have it all there to bulk watch. Yeah. Uh, it, it just puts that control of how to pace it in your hands, which, again, themes of control. Hooray! <laughs> we haven't mentioned Jerry Hogarth yet. For me, she oh. st- started out as a, a fantastic, compelling character, but by the end, she was a husk. And I don't know if that was the intention. Hogarth is a character who will be central to Iron Fist. Ah. She they, in the comic books, it's Jerry. They've gender flipped the character for the TV show, and and Kate Ma, uh, Carrie Moss, Moss was a phenomenal casting choice. But um, Heroes for Hire, yeah, um, is even foreshadowed at the end of the show because that bit at the end, Hogar says about how her partners are trying to muster her out of the firm, and Jessica says, "Don't let them." I have a feeling that will be. A setup for Hogarth consolidating power of the firm and setting up heroes for hire when Iron Fist comes in. She is a fascinating character. As a lawyer, oh lord, that woman (laughs) should have been disbarred years ago and has Mm. been disbarred at least three times in the course of this show. But when we were talking earlier about kind of Kilgrave's narrative and how it starts with the supernatural and then he kind of progresses into wanting to be able to do things without his powers. Hogar's fascination with his powers come from the entirely opposite moral point. At the point where she says, imagine what you could do with this sort of stuff. We know very little about Hogarth and her background. And she's sort of, I mean, she's brusque and she's rude and she's obviously not above reproach having, you know, left a wife of many years for the hot young blonde secretary at her office. But she comes at it from the point of view of moral and I don't want to say righteousness, but you can identify with her morals. She mm. wants to be able to use this power for good. And then, unlike Kilgrave, who tries to step away, she walks towards. Um, she- I I think it's it's also worth noting, she doesn't always want to use it for the greater good. Sometimes it is personal good as well, which I think definitely adds to her character. The greater good. Like, character. there is... There is the really nice moment where they do try, like, there is definitely the temptation there of, hey, you're dealing with a legal battle with your ex right now. That could just go away. Yeah. And she certainly, even if she doesn't ultimately, like, act on that at the time, she is very tempted and aware of that. Oh, but she does act on it. Well, she she does eventually, yeah, she does eventually. She, at the time's like, let's just put the camera on, and then later she gets tempted yeah. first. I, but, uh, I, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry to be the, the dissenting uh, voice with this character, but I, I, I just felt like it, the, uh, the conflict that she was facing 
um, didn't quite match up with the actions that she took in the show. Mm. Um, I, it's just, it's too far. It's too far for me to to think that someone would release this monster just to solve a you know very personal, uh, intimate conflict. Obviously, that's um, you know a horrible thing for her to be going through. Blah 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 blah. I mean, it's part. It's mostly of her creation, but I just. In the face of what Kilgrave is capable of and uh, and what he has demonstrated he is capable of, I just can't conceive of a rationale on the part of the uh, character where she could justify I, the action she takes. I, I, I have an explanation for well, that. Uh, yeah, so do I. Do you want to go, Sharon? I was going to say, I, I have a feeling everybody's is probably going to be quite similar. Mm. But I think it became very clear that um, the the release of Kilgrave and using him to solve her uh, marital issues it goes way way beyond that she is mm. fascinated by him yes. she she personifies control everything about her life is about being in charge being in control being she able to manipulate the situation exactly she does not lose and ultimately what Kilgrave represents to her is what might potentially be another string to her bow of being able to control people Absolutely. and I think she wants to see what he can do I think part of that is about let's let him out in into the wild where I can observe him. And even on some level, she can justify that to herself by saying, well, I'm, I'm, we're supposed to be gathering evidence, aren't we? Well, I'm a respected lawyer and my opinion is it carries great weight in the court. Mm. So if I've observed him doing certain things, surely that's something that would benefit Jessica and everybody I, else. I think there's also a couple of other interesting layers to it. Like you can also layer on top of that her sort of genuine, um, understandable moral objection to Jessica's... Um, methods for getting yeah. things out of out of Kilgrave. <laughs> the fact that she's she Even is a lawyer like, yeah. guts mm. her evidence that is under duress. Yeah. Mm. Like she she is a lawyer who is like, you have kidnapped this person and are now torturing them into giving a confession that will not hold up in court. Like and all that she's seeing from her perspective is I'm taking Jessica on her word that this man has magical powers. But equally, I am watching her do very illegal things right now that I know are real and are really happening. Yep. Um, also, on top of that, there is definitely the um, there there is larger implications in terms of the fact that Kilgrave is a very manipulative person, and even though he's in this very well sealed room. He still takes every cue he can find. Like, he can't hear what's happening, but he still lip-reads. He mm. takes his cues of making sure he knows, like, what is she talking about? What is there I can use against her? He is a manipulator, and she does not... She's the kind of person that doesn't believe she can be manipulated. She yeah. thinks she's always in control. And again, like, talking about letting guards down, as we did earlier, I think this is a great example of she lets her guard down because she thinks... There is no way that he has manipulated me into this situation. I came to this decision of my own of my own will because it's beneficial to me. I think from an external perspective, it's really easy for us to say, okay, compared to Kilgrave telling someone to cut his father's arms off and put them in a blender, of course a divorce is going to look like that. But then look at the character of Wendy. Look at how she's portrayed. Look at how she's an older woman who 
looks rumpled and messy and tired and exhausted and she constantly has the bags under her eyes compared to the absolute perfect professional perfection mm-hmm. that is Hogarth and what I mean that conversation in her house is so telling where Wendy talks about and gives him the horrible idea of the how do you avenge a death of a thousand cuts mm-hmm. we yeah. know that their relationship is long and intense and personal and much like Luke is in his own head about his own trauma and Jessica is in her own head about her own trauma. Hogarth is in her own head about her own trauma. Yes. And each of these characters is justifying the decisions they need to make at the time to deal with their situations. This is a successful professional woman with an extensive reputation, a large firm and the, Facing a situation where a past mistake is going to ruin her present and future. And not only does she fear like the, the, the obvious losses that could come with this, it's the battle of control, I think, is a big part Absolutely. of it. Absolutely. It's it's really interesting, like looking at Hogarth on a much smaller scale as an analogue for Kilgrave, um in like the Kilgrave and Jessica situation mirroring Hogarth and her ex-wife, where basically this is a situation of the person who is very, very powerful and controlling feels like they're losing control over the person that, you know, that they once had control over Mm -hmm. and they are looking for anything that they can find to get that control back. And for, I think for, for Hogarth more than the divorce itself or the money involved, it is my ex-wife has suddenly gained all of this power and control in this situation. And that terrifies me right here is a really really tempting solution for regaining that ground that feels so important to me and again i think when you pair that with the idea of like her as potentially someone who has heard from jessica about the powers this man has but has seen no evidence and has only seen jessica torturing someone who she kidnapped it's very easy for her to i suppose mentally downplay the risk of this man while upselling the potential value he presents to her absolutely i I think for me and this is you know a a subjective thing ultimately my sympathies were always with her ex her ex-wife rather than her oh because everything everything we see on screen um calamity jane sorry uh is very nice (laughs) and uh, she's she's a uh, she's a doctor she's um at no point am I given any reason to think that this person was a bad person. And thus, it, in my mind, paints Hogarth as a very shallow human being who cares about, in my opinion, quite trivial and unimportant things like how attractive somebody is rather than how meaningful that person could be to you and your your life it's i i do get what you guys are saying but at every point it just i i didn't have any sympathy for her actions i think that says i think that says so much for the quality of the writing of this show yes that's exactly what i was gonna say yeah the fact that we can disagree this vehemently over who is in the writing like the writing of a divorce Mm. is very very strong writing um Mm. like uh, my counter to your point i guess there would be that um while yes you are right so much of the way that this dynamic is written puts hogarth very often in the wrong in the way this situation was handled you've equally got 
Hogarth's ex-wife is someone who rather than walking away and like accepting that something has happened, she's being very vindictive about this. And she's like, right, I've been hurt. I'm going to hurt equally back. And it's this, her biggest crime is that she, she follows this idea of an eye for an eye. She tries to perpetuate a cycle of um, regret in that if I've suffered, then at least maybe I can find some catharsis from making you suffer as well. And neither side is flawless in this. It's just that Hogarth would potentially go to a very dangerous length to try and regain control, like a very scary length that she'd potentially go to. And can we just take a second to recognize that that's a relationship between two women mm, with a third woman, which is never commented on, never made a big deal out of. Uh, It just is. I've I've been playing a game recently, which is... um, if you're watching a Netflix original series or a Netflix funded series, how many, uh, how many episodes until there is a, le- a confirmed Canon lesbian on screen? It's always episode one. Like every Netflix series has lesbians in the first episode. It's just a thing. Uh, like I was watching Aziz Ansari's new show, master of none, six minutes to lesbian. Um, <laughs> I I would call this show that. (laughs) (laughs) We're not Inquisition. Yeah, I want to go with that for like um like a lesbian riot girl band at some point. I want to call my band Six Minutes to Lesbian, but um (laughs) yeah, I I it can't be understated like how casually that's initially thrown in. Like first episode of um of this, we get oh your ex wife's on the line about the divorce, and. Then it's, oh, okay, she's in a relationship with this person. There are three women involved in a relationship that is not presented as inherently bad or inherently perfect. There are flaws in every aspect of this relationship. Mm. But that's what makes it human. It is a human flawed relationship. Um, And it's really well handled and really just like never made into a big deal. And I love that. Netflix has been really, really Uh, good with representation. And I think, I mean, they are getting credit. Like, a lot of people have Mm. drawn attention to that. But I think it is important to keep acknowledging the fact that these guys are doing a a good job at Mm. uh, representing different groups of people. They're reading... They're really good at not at not making their attempts at representation also just like universally positive of LGBT people. Like a really yeah. good example of this, slight aside from this, it's a show called that Netflix have done called Grace and Frankie, which is oh, about I love uh, that show. yeah, it's wonderful. It's about two women in their let's say fifties, sixties, seventies. They're like I can't in my head place how old they are right now, um, but their husbands have both divorced them to get into a, a relationship, into a homosexual relationship with each other. And there is a fantastic episode where it is about the fact that um, the two husbands who've now married each other um, come for dinner with the two ex-wives. And there is a brilliant moment where they point out, if you were had divorced your wives and married, uh, and like come to dinner with the people you'd been having an affair with, and you weren't gay we would all be having a go at you. The reason why we're not is because you've just come out. And Netflix are really good at doing these moments of, hey, yeah, these relationships are equally as flawed, but yeah, they do exist. So Netflix, go you. You're good at LGBT relationship putting in shows. <laughs> oh, Lily Tomlin is 76, so that's the age 70s, group. Yes. I, I don't know why I was having such trouble mentally placing It's because she's so ageless. We've right? seen her um, performing for so long. Yeah. Martin Sheen, because it's, it's like, it's 
President Bartlett and, and, the, elusive <laughs> and the elusive man for Mass Effect 2. Oh my God, yeah, it, uh, how did I know place it was the elusive man? <laughs> That's where I knew that voice from. Oh, yes. gosh. There's that uh, bit where he reprimands Miranda and sounds exactly like Bartlett. Yeah. Well, discuss your uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm not in my uh, machine. Yeah, just generally well done Netflix on LGBT stuff, particularly in Jennifer Jones. Uh, Jennifer Jones, Jessica Jones. Speaking also of kind of just gender-related issues, one point I wanted to come back to. There is one character in this show who's kind of a token victim, and it's Ruben. Mm -hmm. He's there to kind of form a little bit of an attachment to Jessica and then be killed off. If anybody fridged. gets fridged in this, it's <laughs> Ruben. Yeah. And it's not a woman. Yes. And mm. that makes... I, 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 It's horrible that that has to happen to a character for narrative purposes. Yeah. But the fact that it is not a woman is mm. a refreshing change. And mm. also, the first fight scene we see is, hey, here is a man being beaten up. Oh, wait, this woman is going to come in and fend off all the attackers and, and save him. Exactly. Like, all of the times where these kind of tropes pop up the first time in Jessica Jones, it is just, let's just flip the genders. Yeah. And that's nice to see. Um, just going back to the subject of, of Hogarth, because I wanted to mention something that was connected to Wendy and I didn't know if we were mm. going to come back to her. But um, this is more an example of how perfect the writing works in this show. There is a single line in the course of that conversation that tells you acres of what you need to know about both Hogarth and Wendy's relationship and uh, in the past and where they are now. And it's when she just drops into the conversation with Kilgrave that she put her through law school. So you mm -hmm. know that they have been together for decades. You know that they have uh, the dynamic to their relationship is first I support you and then you support me, which is also mirrored in the, the uh, dynamic between Jessica and Luke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also that that is a very classic sour note in divorces is yes, the argument yes. that at one point I gave you all this and now you're going to walk away from me. No. Yeah. Uh, it it is such a beautifully messy divorce. Yes. I love it. I wish we uh, knew more about Hogarth and Jessica's early relationship, how they met, how she got involved with this Wendy? firm that apparently oh, does divorces, patent law. <laughs> I'm just, you guys should have heard me ranting about, I'm like, wait, wait a minute, what's your practice this week? A <laughs> <laughs> little bit of everything. Second year of trying to persuade Marguerite to run a Tumblr, which is just her yelling at bad legal writing and TV drama. <laughs> Not enough whiskey in the world. <laughs> Yeah, it it would be nice to have seen more of that relationship, but considering how much we did see, I think that that is definitely one of those complaints where it's like, this would have been nice. I we might be asking for a lot, but... I think it's going to come up in the Heroes for Hire stuff. If, as, we, mm -hmm. if, if, as I think, season two from Hogarth's perspective is going to be basically taking control of this firm or yeah. launching a new venture to deal with the incoming Iron Fist character. It definitely feels like that's where it's going. Yeah. Then there will be the inevitable Daredevil crossover, and it's going to be through Hogarth's firm, somehow, somehow. And that's the opportunity, I think, where they'll start talking about more of their background. It's also If they, if they want to. 
it's also a good example for a, a good uh, opportunity for us to get more terrible made up legal stuff so you'll have fun with that well most of it was pretty okay <laughs> taking a step back daredevil is the number one absolutely best most on point legal show i have seen on television to date I could literally pause the show, look up the section they had just rattled off, and I did this. They rattled <laughs> off some section about criminal procedure in New York. I paused the show, looked it up on my phone, confirmed they were correct, and unpaused and kept watching. That, that so is impressive, actually. Daredevil yeah. is wow. absolutely positively spot on. Jessica Jones has solid law, but takes a few liberties. Uh, th- there's more gray area with it. I would really like to see that continue, especially as the MCU gears up for Civil War. And my number one complaint with Civil War has always been this is the most fundamental constitutional superheroic issue in the history of mankind. Where are the lawyers? The lawyers. <laughs> especially when you've got Matt Murdock and you've got my homegirl, Jennifer Walters. Where are they? You know, Jen is a perfect person to bring into this universe, depending again on whether they make that whole street level versus cosmic level decision. But I think there's going to continue to be more of that legal tie over, especially with Jessica's profession and how we see the show end her taking a more active, whether she wants to or not kind of role in it. We're going to see this kind of stuff come back up. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Over 1,500... No, I'm kidding. We don't do advertising. Yet. We make a modest amount every month via Patreon. So thank you to everyone who helps us pay the bills. Every dollar counts. And hey, if you support us for three bucks a month, you get to preview every podcast two days early. Five bucks gets your bonus material. Fifteen gets you mentioned on our shows as one of our particularly special sponsors. Now, we got more than ever this month. Our head boys and girls at the School of Movies were Ian and Megan Hopwood, Joel Robinson, Russell Osborne, Nick Grogan, David B., Mark Lush, David Garcia Abril, Maureen Foley, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, Lorraine Chisholm, Livio Dela Cruz, Scott Corzine, Dan Mayer, and Erish Traverse. And a big thank you to all of our supporters. You guys keep the shows going. On a side note, by the way, we're talking of Civil War. Uh, if when people start drifting towards that comic series as May approaches, uh, I heartily recommend New Avengers number twenty-two, the best Luke Cage story I've ever read. Uh, now, yeah. obviously, I haven't read much in the way of Luke Cage stories, but uh, it's uh, at midnight that night. Um, the Superhero Registration Act is going into effect, and mm-hmm. he's been warned by Stark: "You've got to register by then, please." And um, he sends away his wife uh, and uh, their child, <clears throat> who's someone we know, and um, basically says, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to uh, fight Stark or, or do anything. I'm just going to sit in my home and I'm going to wait until midnight. And they come for him at midnight and one second. Mm. And um, it's, it's a really great little one-episode mm one-off and i recommend everybody uh 
read that, especially if you like the Luke Cage character yeah. in this. No. Oh, I'm so excited for Civil War, that trailer that just went up. Mm. Oh. Ah, as Tumblr so explodes. <laughs> uh, I really can't blame them for exploding. Oh, that trailer was amazing. I love it. Oh. Um, any more on Jessica Jones? Because we've gone for two two hours thirty eight right now. I was gonna say we might need to do a sequel to this because I bet we could do another. We one. definitely there's mm-hmm. definitely stuff we haven't we talked about. But uh, is there anything which we would then we will we will look back on tomorrow and go? Oh, I can't believe we didn't talk about this bit. Um, one thing I, I really wanted to mention, and unfortunately, it means going back to Kilgrave. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. she says. Doesn't everything. Um, <laughs> Um, but um, as well as uh, sort of obviously his his role as the overarching villain, um, as well as what he demonstrates in terms of the power dynamics of abusive relationships, um, and in addition to reading him as the uh, the psychic aspect of the shadow uh, to Jessica's self, the other interpretation that I had for him was as a representation of mental illness generally. Now, I, I, this is going to be contentious, and, and I don't expect everybody to to go with me on this one, but the the way his, um, his impact is felt by his victims, it struck me that there is there's something about him that kind of shows in that idea of leaving you with self-doubt and was this because of me or was it because of my illness? Um, and you see that in how um, his his victims behave after the fact. So it, there's a range of reactions and they go from relatively innocuous, um, the guy in the support group who uh, Kilgrove asked him for his jacket. Mm-hmm. And, um, and although that was a tiny thing and Jessica even says to him outright at one point, you lost your jacket boohoo move on um but that's not the point for him he is potentially going to spend the rest of his life obsessing about the fact that in that moment he who is obviously quite a you know powerful guy generally he seems like kind of a career type doesn't do things he doesn't want to do but in that moment he wanted to he give did. it away yeah. exactly. and he was one of the cornerstones of that group forming the lynch mob mm. yeah, yeah mm. absolutely um so you so it goes from that to, um, you know, somebody who is, like Jessica, living in a state of arrested trauma, not able to move on, and but they still have to go on with day-to-day life. She still has to work, she still has to interact with people, and yet she's got this, this trauma in her history that she is going to have to hold until a point where she can deal with it. Um, you've got Malcolm um, who ends up with this addiction that he has to then question in himself, was that all Kilgrave or was part of that me? Um, you know, was did I have the potential to have that there anyway? You've got the, the motivation to inflict harm on other people and that is most heartbreakingly exhibited in A Thousand Cuts with Wendy, who mm. I would never up to that point have ever dreamed would have done anything so viscerally um, vengeful Um, and yet it's in her to do that because that's the other thing I think Kilgrave to a point can only draw out of people what kind of almost the seeds are there already 
Mm, yeah. um, I'm trying and to then, think of counter examples to see if I yeah which I'm, yeah. I mean I'm sure there will be again this is this is just something that that occurred to me and then it, as I say it goes all the way up the scale to um, you know somebody like the the EMT who ends up on the dialysis machine completely incapacitated oh. totally at the at the the mercy and, and dependence of, of other people um, and finally Ruben who although he is murdered effectively that is a suicide he does it himself yeah. Um, and so, she yeah, mentions was... he's very sensitive about his neck, so that was a, yeah. a particular mm-hmm. point of trauma. Absolutely, but yeah, just this idea that everything that that Kilgrave has um, in terms of impact on people beyond the immediate, this is what he's making them do. They are all, or can all, be seen as um, representations of mm. how different people might react in the face of, of different mental illnesses or disorders or traumas. And you can look exactly at Hope's death as that mm. as the beautiful analog of not everybody can deal mm. yeah it's some people choose to interact and to recover from their trauma by taking their lives and that is understandable yeah yeah and that is definitely yeah um on the topic of Kilgrave, i think there's one thing that i sort of wanted to talk a little bit more about before you finish up on him i think it's really worth noting how absolutely stunning the writing is of his self-belief that he is right in situations where the audience looks at him as like, no, how can you possibly justify this? And like the, the big one that jumps to mind and the big obvious one has with Jessica about rape, where it's like this moment of um, how can it be rape? I like, I treated you well. I took you out for dinner. We did this, we did that you were happy and it's this sort of weird mix on how he justifies internally i did all these things for you these are not the things that a rapist would do or that someone like whatever whatever he's being accused of it's i did these things whether you consented to them or not that are not the things that are traditionally viewed as that type of um manipulative or abusive person as such the fact that I overrode your consent doesn't matter. Mm. I wasn't acting like X abusive stereotype. And I think the conviction with which those scenes are written where particularly the ones where you've got Jessica acting as like, no, I am telling you that like I did not consent that overrides everything else. And his conviction is like equally strong back. Mm. I think are some superbly written scenes Mm. about like the, the power of, abusive people believing that they have really genuinely done nothing wrong well and and also just the the idea that this cartoonish uh representation of the rapist of the abuser that society has built into the public consciousness is Mm. actually harmful because it makes us uh think that only that kind of awful creepy person could possibly do this kind of thing Mm. when actually it could be somebody who doesn't even realize what they're doing is against somebody's consent like rape doesn't need to be this you know violent thing it can simply be a moment where you haven't fought it through and then you wake up the next day going was that person into that it's it's that whole point of um like saying that you consent isn't in and of itself enough you have to think about is this person right now 
capable of consenting in a way that I know without a doubt is uncoerced consent. Yeah. And for Kilgrave, that is a thing that he has to be aware of. No, you, mm. if you like, you can never be certain of that. And you have to go in knowing if someone tells you afterwards, I did not consent to what I did. You have to t take responsibility for that. You are the one that knows that it's not abuse. Yeah. That yeah. that was painfully familiar um, mm. to me, and and the idea that somebody can look at a situation and say, "Well, I didn't do this, and therefore it's that's not how you interpreted it." I how could it be abusive? I never hit you. How could mm. it be rape? you um you consented the fact that they're in a coercive relationship to begin with and therefore yeah. any consent that she gives is questionable irrespective of whether he's controlling her at the time yeah or not. it's hey if we don't get home in two hours you're gonna make two people slice their own faces off right now my consent doesn't mean anything mm. Mm. yeah and yeah i think that that's just every time we see that explored in the show it just reminds me like quite how stunning if difficult to watch a representation of abusive relationships this is like it just it goes so far beyond the surface level portrayal that i i really think it is really valuable that the show exists mm. yeah, yeah absolutely there's a cracking interview with uh, mm. melissa rosenberg as well where she was talking about the fact that the the abuse and the consequences and the psychological responses of all the characters are portrayed in such the, in the way that they are and the fact that they don't milk the actual abusive situations um, as much as certain other TV shows which mm. shall remain nameless um, have a tendency to do and she said if I never see another rape scene in my life I will be a happy person and she said she yeah. had no intention of filming anything like that because that doesn't tell you anything about the person's response. Yeah like we never needed to see that happen in this show to understand that it happened and the consequences of it and like there, there are certain things like when she first goes to Kilgrave's house and he says, yeah, like, I need to check that you don't have anything on you. And she's like, no, you don't touch me. And it's like little moments like that, that you don't need to show a rape scene when you can have moments like I don't consent to you touching me because of what you did in the past. Yeah. Under any circumstances. Yeah. Under any circumstances, you don't touch me. Mm -hmm. And that is so much more powerful than an actual depiction of a rape scene which is just unnecessary when you have methods like this to show that yeah and then that also gives so much more power to that final episode where in order to do what she has to do she not only allows him to touch trish who is her kind of representation mm. of all that is good and whole and needs to be kept safe and she allows her to be not only touched but kissed and held mm. by him how much self-control it must have taken <laughs> yeah. for her not to just tear him apart at uh, that. to, to, to yeah. not drop the facade that she was under his control mm. yeah to 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 be able to watch her abuser unconsensually do things to someone else and to abuse that control in the same way that he'd done towards her and she kept a straight face and did not give away the fact that she was struggling with that situation mm. that is a really beautiful depiction of strength i can't believe that no one said mm. smile yet that as, oh. as a as a, a means for uh, 
the we, male side yeah. of the species to control the female we, side. We lightly touched on it in the um, the selfies that it's uh, Jessica had to send, but Aspen. yeah, it's it's there's your gamergate analogy right there. Oh god, there's your yeah. super use. Well, it's it's this there. it's this whole moment of I don't just want to control you. I want you to act like you're happy about it. Mm, And it's, I want the world to think you're happy. I want to be able to look at a smiling face and not someone who hates me. I want to be able to look at someone and think, you don't hate me for what I'm doing. And to be able to convince myself that 10 a.m. every day, just smile. And also... Right off my body. Oh, oh, God, yeah. And also the the tying that in with that insidious sentence that I'm sure we've all heard at some point in our lives... Oh, smile, sweetheart. It can't be that bad from a perfect stranger mm. walking past you on the street who has no yeah. idea whether it's that bad or not. Yeah. And it's irrelevant. You want me to smile because it's going to brighten your day. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I feel sorry for people who say that to me because they get a earful. <laughs> yeah, I bet they do. I am so glad I don't work in retail anymore because I can now shout at people when they say that and I don't get in trouble for it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So yeah, smiling is like, it's a weirdly, it is a very loaded act in terms of it's, I'm not only going to control your actions, but I'm going to attempt to control your emotions and the, the external, the emotion, the, your external, yes, your external emotions and the way you present your emotions. I'm going to attempt to control those two. I don't want to have to look at someone who's unhappy to be controlled. <laughs> and that's, bloody terrifying Mm. there's one other thing actually that we haven't mentioned at all and that is jessica's drinking yes Mm. i've got it on my list of things to talk about um do you want to field this one well Mm. what struck me about it was that first of all i mean it's it is she drinks in a very unapologetic way it's not something mm. that's ever really discussed in the show to any great length and yeah. you can apply that to so many things but it, you know it, it it is mentioned a couple of times that she drinks maybe more than she ought to um you can kind of infer from things that have been said in the mcu before that maybe alcohol doesn't quite have the same effect on her as it does on people who don't have powers so you know there may mm. be mitigating factors there but there is no scene of stress where she doesn't take a drink there is virtually no scene where she is in either her own home or somebody else's where there is not some form of alcohol in view and i thought that was a really subtle way of showing that whether she is actively drinking or not alcohol is always on her mind she's always got it there as the thing that she can reach for when she needs it and that peaks when she you have that scene where she's going through all the drawers and under the sofa and everywhere and all the bottles that she finds are empty Josh, did you, you mentioned on Twitter um, that there were going to be a lot of op-ed pieces about the amount of exit signs. Was that a joke, or did you actually mean that that's something significant about the show? I, I, I mean, I, I don't know the uh, symbolic value of those exit signs. I just noticed them in almost every frame when people are inside a building. I'd, I'd love to hear somebody's uh, interpretation the, of that. I haven't got one. The best interpretation I've seen on that is it's just, um, it's usually the scenes where Jessica is present and that Jessica is um, facing situations that are difficult for her to face. There are usually exit signs within the frame and the sort of fairly surface level reading of that being at all of these moments of confrontation, the urge to turn and run rather than face these situations is an ever-present option. Mm. That it is always something that's playing in the back of the mind of, 
I could just run away and leave this to be everyone else's problem. Yeah, I, I, it was just... It was happening with a frequency mm. that it couldn't have been an accident. And yeah. they're they big, bright exit signs as yeah, well. It, they're not subtle. So it, I, I thought it would mean something yeah, uh, like it, that. It definitely seems to be primarily the, the times when Jessica is presented with the situation of either face this situation and put yourself at risk or leave and leave this problem to everyone else. And those are the scenes where she seems to have exit signs within the frame for the primary uh, the majority of her shots i will so say that i started playing watchdogs the other day um Mm. i picked it up for a pound and um (laughs) i I just used game points but uh the 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 first first moments of the game you start off playing this gravelly voiced white man um who who uh hacks people's phones with his phone uh and the first thing you learn about him, my dead family. And it's, he's, uh, who else has played it? I have. I'm familiar with that. It's, it, it, familiar it shows you the scene at the beginning where he's driving in a car with his family. I think they show you it twice. And his little girl's got a little cuddly lamb and the lamb ends up on the road because the car crashes. My dead family. And then there's the grave. And that's the first thing you learn about him. And it's like, that is characterization to Ubisoft. <laughs> In Jessica Jones, it's the other way around. You get the behavior and then more behavior. And then you b- start to think that you know how it, you know, what that is to do with. And then you go back further and you find out more and more about him. That is how actual characterization works. Mm. Where you, you you learn about, I mean, there's, there's other ways of doing it. If you can, um, you know, you can show something significant that happens to somebody at the beginning. But it just it's so flipping easy. To go, my dead family is is the reason why this white man is grumpy. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this is Jessica Jones is not a show that takes any shortcuts. Yeah, no, yeah, it, and it's it, just refreshing yeah. that, that that they they went the long way around on that one. And yeah, yeah, it went yeah, my dead family. But there's just so much more to her. Yeah, hmm. I did think at some point. This whole the idea that people's powers are kind of subtle extensions of their personalities. Nothing else in the MCU has felt more like mutants to me. Uh, I, I, at least the Purple Man is a mutant in the at the comics. Yeah. Oh yeah. And the, I, as I understand it, the Purple Man is a mutant who they cannot call a mutant, and that is why he here well, has to be something else. Meta human. Actually, yes. No. You can't um, or am I wrong? mutant in the MCU. It's that's yeah. well, that's this, a legal yeah. That that is that is my point. Um oh. is that they're not allowed to call him a mutant in the MCU because X Men films. Yes. But I believe in the, I believe in the comics he is a mutant. And and he's actually purple skinned. Yeah. Yes. I thought that they're gonna go there when uh, he started to mutate at the and- uh, middle end. Oh, I, it was very subtly done when you saw the blood vessels yeah. in his face yeah. darken, and you're like, ooh. I, but I, no, I yeah. loved the co- doing it as the costuming mm-hmm. choice was yeah. just so subtle and, and little, so wonderful. Little flashes of purple around the place just to sort of like set your face. Like, it, it reminded me of It Follows. You know how yeah. uh, you're, you're sort of always watching the back of the screen for just like moving figures? Like I was like specifically in the early episodes, I was like, there's a flash of purple there, purple car. Yeah. Oh my God, a bit of purple t-shirt. Um, it, just, it just constantly reminds you to be slightly uh, not at ease. And it's not yeah. something obvious that you think about. It's just like, wait, why am I feeling so uneasy right now? Oh, there's purple. Yeah. 
I can't. I have a lovely purple silk scarf, and I just can't wear it now. <laughs> yeah, like, mine's, on, mine's on the floor next to my desk, and I'm like, yeah, that purple scarf's not. Yeah. No, not this week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> our bedroom has purple curtains. Oh God. <laughs> We got them just before we saw it, but now we wish we hadn't. In the comic, isn't it that um, there's like the, there's a purple field around him that sort of subtly it's like um, it's purple lighting, and then when he's around people, they um, they they just sort of fall under his influence. But he's like a D-list villain, and that's one of the things that um, Bendis is really really good at. He takes nobody villains. And turns them into something really quite terrifying, especially with these street level um, characters. Mm-hmm. And that's something I wonder. Well, they're going to have to in the in the uh, uh, upcoming years because they've kind of already mined all the A listers. But then again, yeah. um, Kevin Feige maintains there are there's no A B C tier. Everyone is a premier hero. Sorry, antagonist protagonist. Mm. Um, they do have a bit of a class system going on though. They do. The people at the top have money and resources. The people at the bottom have booze and leather jackets. <laughs> That's what's going to be interesting because when you bring in Iron Fist, he's another one of the billionaires. Oh, yeah? Ah. <laughs> so he'll be more like Arrow. Danny to show up and go, my my God, you, you people live in squalor. <laughs> yeah, I I do like the fact that you did just mention like drinking problems as being something for the uh, the the street level ones. Yeah. When we do Tony have Stark. Iron Man, we do have Tony yeah. Stark. That is a fine point. Drinking I apologise and withdraw that, that Yeah, example. drinking problems are not strictly surf- <laughs> at street level. Yeah, um, I'm, I was kind of surprised that. Zebediah died at the end. I, uh, at the same time, morally speaking, Jessica had a, a responsibility to the world to shut him down. Uh, in the same way that Superman needed to kill Zod in Man of Steel. That there, there really shouldn't be that kind of, well, oh, but Superman doesn't kill. He needed to take him down at that point. But that's the whole arc. Yeah. In a lot of ways, you can look at this whole series and map it on a Western. Yeah. This yeah. is the hero being convinced that the only course of action is to break their own personal preference or code yeah. and take a life. Yeah. And I really I didn't I didn't necessarily see it coming, but I thought that the the decision to have this be something that wasn't rewarding or fulfilling. Yeah. Emotionally for for Jessica was really brave and really like the only applicable ending you could have had to that, which is you got your revenge. It didn't help. Yeah. To the point where they don't even have a crescendo necessary. in the music. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, just played yeah. flat. It just, it just happens and then straight away it's gone and nothing has changed. Yeah. As I understand it, in the comic, he has a healing factor. I'm really hoping they don't break that out. Oh, no, no they, they seem to already be talking about next season being ver- a very different villain. So. They certainly set it up to yeah. be much more of a typical episodic, you know, case of the week sort of scenario. But, but they've planted so many seeds. We have everything with Simpson and the red, white and blue pills. I mean, that's a whole program in the comics with Nuke and, you know, attempted super soldier serums and all of that. Um, we have all of the IGF material, which is implying common origin, because we have not only um, 
what's Luke's wife, dead wife's... Reva Connors. However, she got a hold of it, which implies all those other people, which ties in with Kilgrave and the organization, ties in with Jessica's accident. So we, we could imply a common origin story there. Yeah, they, they certainly don't need Kilgrave at this point. They have more than enough other material to go work exactly. with. And, and I think just they've mined a lot out of that character in this season and I worry if they did bring him back and I'm glad they're not doing this mm. that you'd just start retreading a lot mm. of familiar ground yeah. um, This his death I think was a smart choice because there are villains in, in other superhero uh, movies or TV shows where they kill them off and you're like well th that's a wasted opportunity because you could do so much more with that character mm. but in this particular case I don't think there's anywhere else you could go with him they've yeah. kind of taken him to his natural it, you know end point and it feels like a concise character study in everything you can do with that particular yeah. villain and that particular threat and it's yeah. absolutely in keeping with just kind of comic book pattern you have a mentalist very rarely because of the havoc they wreak and because they get through everybody else's defenses there's a reason there hasn't been one in the movies what happens when you mind control hulk i mean if you think about it take a step back if Kilgrave had not been arrested in development at the psych uh, as a sociopathic 10 year old mm. he would have gone straight to congress yeah you know, this is somebody who would have gotten involved with Hydra and, and gone for much different levels of power. Ultimately, he's just a hedonist who wants to mind control somebody to drive him around for a week. And that's also really interesting that because of his ambitions being so small, Hydra just did not notice he existed. Not and... even a flip on the radar, though yeah. I really expect... Shield. The organization responsible for Simpson, the red, white, and blue pills... Mm -hmm. To have registered him. I originally thought that the reason Hogarth kept the sample from Hope was because, well, as a lawyer, I thought, ooh, evidence, okay, proof of rape, that's a good idea. Knowing then later on that she was trying to get genetic information to see if his powers could be duplicated, whatever lab that went to may have shown up on Hydra's radar. So don't be, I would not be at all surprised if season two, we get tie-ins of this group of not hiding, but not being overt starts to come on the radar, yeah. especially with that wonderful throwaway line about, you know, the, the woman who hired her to take photos of the husband and was actually a setup because she wanted revenge for a death in the incident. Yeah. And Jessica talks about, I know 99 in this borough alone. In the comic books, as people with abilities become more and more prevalent, and especially in the lead up to Civil War, you start to have that veil that allows everyone to convince themselves that Clark Kent is not Superman when he puts on a pair of glasses starts <laughs> to thin. And people start to take notice and you get more and more issues, which means you get more and more organizations, profit-driven evil-driven, supernatural-driven that start collecting information. So I'm, we're definitely yeah. going to start coming back to that. We, we didn't talk about that episode at all, but I thought that whole scene was fantastic. That whole, like, no, you're not allowed... Just because you've had something bad happen to you doesn't mean you're allowed to redirect that at me and make that my fault and that whole... Uh, 
very violent and aggressive scene from Jessica. Oh, so fantastic. Which was a beautiful analogy of, you know, just because you're the victim of terrorism doesn't mean that person in a headscarf is allowed to be your victim. Yep. So that was very well timed with its release. Yeah. I was actually kind of surprised that the, that Luke, featured that much because when we go into Luke Cage we will be very familiar with the character already it's almost like they won't have to do groundwork so it'll almost be like a a Luke Cage season two if that makes sense there were a lot of little bits and pieces that seemed to garner an unnecessary amount of camera time (laughs) that I can't help but wonder are tie-in points because as we know Luke disappears for about the middle of the run like Gandalf well, kind of. But then there, the, then there are those references to, like, there was this shot where she's in the morgues looking um, for the dad. That they would just linger on images of files and hospitals and things like that. And I'm like, are you, or news programs, which were unnecessarily mm. loud in the background, that made me think... We're going to get a lot of crossover with the other Defender shows before we ever get the Defender show. Well, it's it's that whole thing that they, the, the, the Netflix series equivalent to the Avengers. It's, you get all of these uh, series that start tying in more and more and more with each other before you again eventually get, oh, here is the one where they actually cross over. Exactly, yeah. Oh, uh, more Phil Coulson driving through the desert listening to Big Band, please. Yes, that would please. be lovely. Yes, please. <sighs> it, would be no- it's, it would be nice if they're going up against a cartel or some sort of syndicate that can't just be punched. Because so many of them are punchy, to just have them weighed in like that, they can't just do that for defenders. Have them, you know, just turn up and, and beat the crap out of a bunch of guys. That would be so boring and such so, a pointless waste of all the build-up. And we have Madam... Oh, sorry. It's go fine. ahead. This you you you're about to yeah. make my well, point you know much more better than I, do. than I am. Um, I think there's a good chance that the threat that's going to show up in Defenders is one we've already seen. The uh, Chinese from, lady, uh, yes, yeah, who is very closely tied to Kunlun, which is the city where Iron Fist gets his powers, and who very significantly is tied into the New York underworld. And the one time we see her in Daredevil fight, she touches Matt on the chest, and then he's thrown backwards about 20 feet. Nice. I, it, my, my instinct, and all I have to go off this is, is really my, my knowledge of basic narrative architecture, is all of this is building to them doing that thing that Marvel does when they're on their game, which is making a bug a feature. Because there's been all these ridiculous, completely unfounded rumors that Iron Fist is a horrendously broken show. They don't know how to do it, and they're going to quietly swap it out for The Punisher. And if you're listening to this in two years, and Iron Fist has been replaced (laughs) by season one, yes, you can feel very smug at me now. The way you make Kunlun work is you make it the overall plot of four or five different things at once. And you explore how it ties in with the Inhumans. You explore how it impacts on Hell's Kitchen. You explore how it ties into the Defenders and Heroes for Hire. And I think Margaret's theory that the Defenders and Heroes for Hire are essentially going to be the same organization is absolutely spot on. I think we've seen a lot of what the Defenders is going to be about. I think a lot of it's Madame Gow, and I think a lot of it is the architecture of Hell's Kitchen. And as we get each one of these shows, it's going to zero in more and more and more. And I think Iron Fist is... Much like Civil War looks like it's Avengers 2.5, I suspect Iron Fist is going to be the Defenders Season Zero. Gotcha. 
See, because now Winter Soldier feels like uh, Civil War 0.5. Let's go. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's when Marvel's on the game. Either way, I'm excited. I, I definitely am. And uh, the uh, I engaged personally with um, uh, Jessica Jones a lot more than I did with Daredevil. But I still thought Daredevil was a cracking show at times. Um, and obviously, I'm the minority. Most people absolutely yeah. love it. <laughs> but uh, it, it's... It engaged both of these shows engaged me a hell of a lot more than another favorite of you guys, Agents of Shield. Um, and I think uh, Jessica Jones and Peggy Carter are around about neck and neck, and we should really do that Peggy Carter show at some point. Yes, quick yes, before you quick before she goes to L.A. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, anything else on Jones? It's fabulous, and I can't wait for season two. Oh, it's it's, I'm, it's I'm wonderful. It's it's great. Okay, it's not easy, <laughs> but it's good. Yeah. It's 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 tough watching. It's not for everyone. I don't blame anyone who decides that they don't feel up to watching through it. Mm. I do but, blame the people mm. who said they stopped watching it because it was badly paced and boring. Oh no 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 people shush no no. <laughs> Okay, uh, and to uh, close us out, uh, I'm going to send you guys a picture of Dylan Moran as the Punisher. <laughs> <laughs> so hold on a second. Um, right, um, okay, so as we go, would you guys like to pimp your various podcasts? Uh, and uh, let's start with Alistair first. Yeah, um, I own a company that runs three podcasts and is about to run a fourth. We also have a, a digital magazine we've just launched. We do Escape Pod, which is weekly short science fiction. Pseudopod, which, which is weekly horror fiction that I also host. Podcastle, which is weekly fantasy fiction. Mothership Zeta is our quarterly digital magazine, which is an anthology of all those genres with one or two from the from the podcasts and some really kick-ass non-fiction stuff and you can subscribe to a year's worth of that for 10 bucks which is a ridiculous price uh, it, it's sufficiently ridiculous I, I would be saying you should subscribe to this it's a ridiculous price if i didn't own the company <laughs> and we're also about to bring on um a fourth show but i'm not the person in this room who is best qualified to talk about that that would Nicely. be me. <laughs> Hi, I'm Marguerite Kenner. I'm a trainee solicitor by day and a podcaster by night. I'm the editor and host of Cast of Wonders, which is YA short fiction. Shortly, we'll be joining uh, the Escape Artists family and, as far as I know, is the only pro-rate YA podcast out there. Ooh, Yeah. Joshua? Uh, so I hail from the Cane and Rinse podcast. Uh, we take a game or a series of games and we analyze it and dissect it in detail. Um, we've Much recently like we've been doing here. Yes, uh, 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 yeah. Uh, School of Movies is often described as the movie equivalent of Cane and Rinse by you. a lot of people. Um, yeah, and um, we've recently launched uh, Volume 5 of the podcast. Um, we haven't released an episode yet into the, into the wild, but the list is up there for everyone to see. You're doing uh, Zelda now, aren't you? Yeah, we're, we're doing all, all apart from those rubbish, um, what, the Gwand of Gamelon. We're not doing those ones, but apart from those the ones. Philip CDI ones. Are you, have you actually got to play them all the way through to the end, each one? Every single Zelda game, we're finishing you have to all cane of them. it and rinse it. Oh my god! Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I've started. 
<laughs> I, I I've signed I get on sick for of that theme. <laughs> yeah. I've I've signed on for all of them. We've just recorded God. the first one. And now I'm playing Zelda 2. Oh god. That, that that is an experience. It is an experience, and I have to finish it. Oh god! Oh, good Ouch. luck. Um, good luck ever finishing it. Yeah. Anyway, yes. So you can find us at canandrince uh, which also happens to for uh, folks who listen to our old uh, podcasts feature my good buddy Tony Atkins, uh, who I started podcasting with, and. Uh, I believe Laura K. Buzz may just have uh, the, the one that probably requires no introduction, but introduce it anyway. Yeah, I have a bit of a list of podcasts. Yeah, go for them so all. <laughs> let's go through the whole gosh darn list. Uh, so I do a podcast called Podquisition uh, that goes out every Thursday. It's got Jim Sterling on it. We do uh, silly and serious mixed talking about video games of the week. Um, I also do a bunch of other podcasts. I do the Geek Night In, which is three ladies just talking about our geeky weeks that's not any specific thing it's just anything geeky we had that week i also do the oh no video games podcast the category video games podcast <laughs> the year of steam podcast the destructoid uk podcast and laura's gaming butts which is a video podcast about the butts of video game characters <laughs> because i am incredibly highbrow other than that you can find me at laura k buzz on twitter laura k buzz on patreon laura k buzz on YouTube or laurakbuzz.com where all of the things I make just go up in a constant stream of content. Maybe you're the hardest work. I, I always like to describe you as the hardest working woman on the internet. It's, <laughs> it's, I'm probably right. but um, I would certainly you. say your Patreon is probably the best value on the internet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the I, amount I, of I, stuff I, you get for that. I put out a lot of stuff on Patreon. I There's at least something every day, usually a few things every day. <laughs> Oh, Sharon, by the way, you may not know this, but Gavin, the co-host on uh, uh, Podquisition, he was the one who, comp- I believe, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Laura, he composed that you can fight like a cougar, you yes. can run like a leopard, but you'll oh, never wow. be but better than Commander yeah, Shepard. Yeah, Love the, that song The so Commander Shepard song is written by my co-host on Podquisition, Gavin Dunn, Miracle of Sound. So we should if, get Gavin if, if, on. If, yeah, if you've ever heard that song, he did that one. He does a lot of good songs. Yes, he does. Uh, he's Miracle of Sound on YouTube. He makes a lot of good video gamey songs. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so, so much for coming on to talk about this show. It has been an unmitigated pleasure having you all together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's yeah, been a pleasure you. to be able to talk about this somewhere. <laughs> I've, I've been looking forward to it since we, like, not even before we were, like, we were halfway through. I was like, ah, this is going to make a good We're podcasting on <laughs> yeah. this, I believe, were your exact words. <laughs> um, and uh, next week we'll be back with a commentary for The Empire Strikes Back. We'll see you for that. Uh, so I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's, school's out. out.